The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. What's up, man? Keep this like about like a fist from your face. Oh, all right. You are the first professional pool player to ever be on this podcast. Yeah, thank so you. Congratulations. Thank you so much. How old are you, man? I'm 22. How long have you been playing? Uh, I've actually started with a different game called Russian Pyramid. Yeah, I've seen that before. Yeah, that's the game we play in Russia. Uh, you know, I've played since I was about six. That's when I had my first coach. But I've been around the billiard balls since the very beginning. You, What are you ranked in the world right now? You're like, in my opinion, you're like top three, top four in the world. Uh, there's currently like too many different rankings. You, oh. can't, you can't really... Because I didn't play as many tournaments this year, like official ones, so I don't have any ranking points. Because of the, cause you're from Russia, and yeah. um, you couldn't play in tournaments for a while, right, during the Ukraine crisis? Yeah, so uh, since the end of February when uh, the whole thing started, uh, uh, they, uh, they banned all the Russian athletes, and they only removed the ban in... I believe in uh, the end of July. You know what's crazy is they didn't ban UFC fighters. Yeah, we had a lot example. of Russian UFC fighters, and they don't even get treated badly. They don't. They don't get booed. I mean, they get booed a little bit by some it's, assholes. But. It's different in every sport, like hockey. You know, Ovechkin yeah. is still playing. You know, there's uh, a lot of great players in hockey that still play from Russia. But so in pool, they made a decision to not have Russian players for a little while, and then they relaxed it. How, why did they relax it? Did they? Realize uh, it was. It's not your, your. It's not your business. Like it's not like, you're 22. You're not. You're not involved in politics. Well, you can understand it from. Uh, I don't know from like the business point of view. But uh, I guess. But uh, you know, pool in my opinion is a is a s small sport, and uh, in the end of the day, I don't know how many pool players, will you ban by. Betting the Russian athletes, I know, I mean, three players. Yeah, there's only a few from Russia, right? Yeah, that play internationally. And you're the best? Uh, from Russia, yeah. Yeah, for sure. For no, sure, yeah. Like, you're one of the best in the world, period. It's kind of crazy to be one of the best in the world at something at 22 years old, because you have so much room to grow and get better. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's got to be very promising for you, because uh, at 22 years old, you're just sort of like... Your body's not even fully formed yet. Your brain's not fully formed. They say your cerebral cortex, your frontal lobe, fully forms when you're 25. Yeah, I mean, I still have a lot of uh, potential, and I am definitely will be aiming to get up there. So how did you make the trek from uh, coming to Ru from Russia, coming to the United States to play? How old were you? Uh, you mean the first time I came? Yes. Uh, was uh, 2016. Uh, my very good Russian friend and my sponsor... He brought me to Derby City Classic, mm. so that was my first experience. So uh, you were like what, sixteen or something? Sixteen, yeah. Wow, and robbing I, people at sixteen. <laughs> I did pretty good uh, in the nine ball division. I think I finished in round twelve, which oh. is like the last twelve players out of yeah. like five hundred plus. That's so, pretty good for sixteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, and then uh, a lot of people kind of recognized that I can play, and uh, I got an invite for uh, Derby City Classic Invitational Temple Tournament. And the Derby year. City Classic, we should tell everybody, is this enormous uh, eight-day tournament that takes place in Kentucky. Yeah, nonstop action. Uh, every year, it's like the Hustlers Convention. 
like all the great players, all the the gamblers, all the people that talk shit, all the people that sell cues. Everybody goes down to the Derby City. Yeah, that's the biggest pool fest. I still haven't been. You should. You I know. Should. I wanted to. You, do you know Justin Collett? He used to run the Action Report. Uh, I've heard, but that wasn't. He's a good friend of mine. And at one point in time, we had actually talked about doing like a documentary on the Derby City. Because I think it's so it's such a crazy subculture of America that most people just have no idea. Oh, yeah. That's the great thing. You can, you can like, for sure film a movie about it. Oh, yeah. There's so many characters and so many oh, yeah. oddball people. You know, I found pool when I was, uh, I guess I was about 23, somewhere around that, 23 or 24, I first started playing pool, and uh, I, I injured my knee. I had an um, a ACL tear in my knee, so I couldn't work out for a while, and uh, a friend of mine who was a comedian, we started playing pool together. We both sucked. We were just playing pool. But just so lucky that the place that I picked to go to was a local action spot. And there was a lot of big gambling going on there. Like guys would come in and play $10,000 sets of one pocket. It was a big deal. And so I got to see these guys and I got to see this subculture that I wasn't aware of. And I got to see what it looks like when the game of pool is played really well. When someone's really good at it, how beautiful it is to watch and how exciting it is to yeah. watch. So I was, uh, you know, I was exposed to it at a very early age. Not, a, not an early age. For most, not obviously not an early age for you, but for me, it was like I I had no idea that there was a world out there where people just wanted to play pool all day and gamble. Oh yeah, there's a lot of people <laughs> that do play pool every day and uh, all day, eight hours a day for yeah. sure. For sure. How many hours a day do you play? Uh, it depends on my tournament schedule. You know, I'm uh, I'm not an action player that play all all day every day. But when you uh, say action player, you mean gambling? Gambling, yeah. yeah. So I'm a I'm a I, consider myself as a tournament professional player but you do gamble i do yeah you have gambled <laughs> I i'm do. aware of some gambling that you take place in <laughs> yeah yeah i've played some matches big ones and small ones uh but uh, what's the biggest one you've ever played how much uh the biggest amount that i ever won was uh 51,000 from one guy it was this year oh. but we it was we, we played by the wreck so we we started off at playing like a thousand a rack mm. and then we increased a thousand a rack one pocket oh okay which is still a really good bet yeah know? that's a very good bet yeah yeah and then we played uh all day and uh i kept winning and winning he was increasing and increasing raising the bet fifty one thousand dollars in a day yeah that's nice <laughs> he yeah. must have been sick oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> did was. you give him a spot yeah, I had to give him a spot from the beginning, and then by the end of the day, uh, the spot was even bigger. So let's explain one pocket, because there's a lot of people that are listening that don't know what that means. Um, one pocket is a game. On a pool table, there's six pockets. And in one pocket, you each have one of the corner pockets near where the balls are racked. Mm -hmm. And the goal of the game is just for other people, not for you, obviously. Yeah. You know how to play. <laughs> the goal is there's 15 balls in a rack. The goal is for you to get eight balls in your pocket you only have one pocket that you could shoot the balls in but now for a player like yourself like if you were going to play someone like me you'd have to give me a big spot it would yeah. have to be like you know i'd have to get like four balls yeah and like, you would have to get 11 something yeah, like, like that something like something that, like that. Yeah, yeah that's that's basically what it was with that guy we started off at uh i was giving him 12 to 6 i think mm. and uh we ended up giving i uh, ended up giving him 10 to 5. 
Mm. Which is a huge spot. That's a huge he was, spot. He was uh, on that tilt and couldn't uh, couldn't do anything. Yeah, that's the problem. Once you start losing a thousand dollars a game, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, the world of pool and gambling is such an interesting world to me because it's uh, something that people get very, very, very addicted to. Oh yeah, there's a lot of characters in uh, in our sport. Yes, there are. So. Um, when you're playing uh, the Russian pyramid game, so you're over in Russia and you're playing this game, were you, how were you exposed to nine ball and ten ball, the games they play here in America? So uh, what happened was uh, I was obviously a little short and uh, I couldn't really reach the table because the pyramid table was a little bit higher than the pool table. And uh, I think I was about eight or nine year old. Uh, and my coach told me that I probably have to switch to pool if I want to play professionally and uh, you know I have more potential I can travel the world and uh, we decided that we have to switch and that's when I started playing pool so nine. when you say your coach is that common in Russia that young players have coaches honestly all over the world uh, the the game is treated differently it only in the US it's more of a you know a, some entertainment that you can just go to the bar and drink beer and have fun really yeah in russia they treat the game as a sport and uh, we have practice facilities coaches that work with kids wow i know it's the case in other places like i know in taiwan they do that yeah china china uh germany i mean poland uh netherlands copenhagen um i heard they have a day where all they do is jump they just practice jump shots all day. The whole game is jump shots. I, I believe that. I did yeah. that too. <laughs> do you do that too? I mean, uh, I've practiced a lot. I've, I've jumped a lot of balls before uh, when I was, uh, I was a kid. You know, I just had fun jumping balls around. I'm fascinated by Russian methods for sport because um, so many elite combat sports athletes come out of Russia, so many great wrestlers, so many great mixed martial arts fighters, great kickboxers. And um, I had John Bernthal on the podcast. You know, he's a very famous actor who's in The Punisher and The Walking Dead and a, a bunch of movies and stuff. Really, really interesting guy. But he went over to Russia to study theater. And he said that it was so different than anything he'd ever done. And for the first year, you didn't even read anything. They just worked with you on rhythm and remembering things and concentration and, and acrobatics and ballet. It's like Russia is, uh, the way they treat sport is so disciplined. Well, back in USSR, I think they treated it even more strict than nowadays. You know, the coaches were uh, really, really hard on the kids. And uh, I think that's why they all raced with uh, discipline. Hmm. I think that's, that's the main factor that uh, really favors them. So in Russia, they have the pyramid game. Is that the primary game that people play? That's what everybody's playing. I mean, honestly, pool is so small in Russia that you can count the players on both hands. So why did your coach think that you should play pool then if, it, if the pyramid game was so big? Uh, really, that's, uh, that's a good question because, uh, like I said, I was really, really short. Maybe he was feeling that uh, I you should. You weren't going to grow? No, but he was <laughs> he was thinking, I think, at that time that, uh, it's better off starting with pool because I can reach the table and then switch mm. back to pyramid. But he was uh, he wasn't expecting that I will be as good. That I started to progress really quick. I started to win amateur tournaments, uh, you know, winning junior tournaments. Mm. And, uh, 
Let's see that game. Pull up a game of uh, Russian. How do you call it? Russian pyramid billiards. Russian pyramid. Russian pyramid. It. Uh, it's a. Uh, is it a larger table? It's a twelve foot table mm -hmm. with tiny pockets, bigger balls. So oh. it's it's tougher to make the ball. It's a completely different game. It's fun to play. It's not fun to play if you never played any billiards. Are the corners rounded or are they flat? And they're flat. Off? They're, they're flat. flat. So they're flat like a pool table, not like a snooker table. Oh wow! Look at the size of that table. That's wild. Look at the tiny pockets. <laughs> so the t the pocket is essentially the size of the ball. Uh, almost. Almost. Wow! This is crazy. Why is it called pyramid? Uh, because of the shape of the wreck. I don't know. Mm. So, and in Russia, when you play this, you mostly play with a, an open bridge, right? Uh, yeah, most, mostly they, they use open bridge, but, uh, for like hard shots, I believe when they have to draw the ball. And so you can use any ball? Uh, it depends on the discipline you play. So this guy is shooting. This guy's some amateur. I don't know. What yeah. He's, he's just whacking balls. Around, <laughs> yeah. Like. But at least we get a, a chance to see what the table looks like. So there's one, uh, is that a red ball? It looks like a maroon ball. So red ball is the cue ball. There is a discipline oh. where you, where you have to play only with the red ball kind of like pool and there is discipline where you can shoot any ball but it's the same thing it's a race to eight balls mm. and whoever makes eight balls first wins. in any in any pocket uh any pocket yeah the thing about snooker players and um i guess probably this russian pyramid game too is that your fundamentals and your form have to be so perfect because the table is so big and the balls are so small that any room for deviation on your shot, you, you have to really tighten everything up. Whereas opposed to a lot of American tables, those five-inch pockets, you know, there's a lot of room for fucking around and sloppy shots will still go in. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's the difference between the games, I think. Uh, fundamentals has to be really, really good playing snooker and pyramid. That's, yeah. that's mostly what they work on and pool you can see all the players that have their own style their own techniques mm -hmm. and they can get away playing some weird styles yeah they can get away with bad fundamentals yeah if well there's some great players that had bad fundamentals like if you ever watch keith mccready play yeah yeah, yeah. sidearm yeah crazy total yeah. sidearm but amazing player oliver ordman from germany is yes. the same way yes well, you know, that's because they started when they were young and they couldn't reach the table either. So they yeah. had to have their arms sideways because they couldn't let it hang down normally. Well, that's my problem nowadays, too, because uh, my stance, I grew up with a wrong stance. With well, like a straightforward stance as opposed to like a sideways pool stance? Yeah. Like a snooker table stance. Uh, and Russian pyramid, yeah. Yeah, same, similar, right? Yeah, and I, uh, I have to slightly change it every year because I'm still growing and... Uh, I'm taller than the average pool You're player. You're still growing? You're 22? You haven't stopped growing? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So um, you, you also have to bend at the knees too, right? Because you're, you're kind of tall. So like to lock the legs out. So that's that's the thing that I always experiment with. I can play with one uh, bent knee and with both uh, bent knees. Yeah, because I was always taught to lock legs, that if you locked your legs... Um, you have a more stable stance. But then I watch guys like Shane Van Boning, and he bends at the knees. Yeah. Well, every player is really yeah. different. Uh, you can see, uh, for example, Carlo or Carlo Beato or mm -hmm. uh, Jason Shaw. They have their legs straight, both mm -hmm. of them. Yeah. Because they're not as tall 
as the other ones. Right. You have both legs uh, straight, right? Yeah, I always do that. So that yeah. was taught. I didn't used to do that though, but then I got some pointers from someone. Max Eberly actually helped me with that. Mm -hmm. Max Eberly coached me uh, when I lived in LA. That was the first. I had some lessons when I first started out in New York from like there's a guy named Jimmy Abel that was like an old school uh, straight pool player. He was a really good player. And uh, a few other guys like gave me some pointers and tips, but Max gave me some like real lessons. Yeah, and he changed a lot of my fundamentals and tightened everything up because I had a lot of like bad habits that I didn't even know I had. That's the difference, I guess. Uh, what I'm talking about with Russia is that if you have a coach and you have a program, you're you're it's probably like explain how that works. Is it a, like a very disciplined regiment that you guys would practice? I mean, not really. Uh, it may sound really professional, but uh, f what happened with me? I had four, five, five different coaches, and uh, from the very beginning, I was, for example, as a seven-year-old, I had a coach, and I reached the limit uh, that I could learn from one coach, and my parents used to always tell me, "Well, we have to switch, because that's that's the only way to grow." And uh, once I uh, found that coach, the very last Russian coach that I had at the thirteen, at, when I was thirteen, uh, I felt like I couldn't grow more because we don't have many professional coaches in Russia because the game is really small. Russian pyramid has many many coaches. And uh, I got really lucky because uh, in 2015, Johan Reising, uh, he was a Moscone Cup captain many, many, many times for Europe and U.S. He came to Russia as a national coach and practiced with the national team for two years. That's when things really changed, and uh, I think I'm really grateful that it happened. Interesting. So, um, so you're playing pool over in Russia. Are there many pool tournaments? I mean, we have uh, amateur tournaments every two weeks, maybe, and uh, one tournament a month, which called Russian Cup, which is kind of like a professional tournament. Just one a month. So you realized at some point in time that you were eventually going to have to come to America to pursue it professionally or Europe. Uh, Europe was my first uh, step because we have a Euro Tour. That's the major tournament in Europe that I started with. And all the, I mean, that's the path that all the players have to go through in Europe. You have to play the Euro Tours. And if you do good on them, then you can start really traveling and playing international tournaments. I watched a match with you against Oscar Dominguez, who I know from L.A., uh, I've played. I played in a tournament once against his dad, and his dad actually did that table out there. That oh. uh, really tight Brunswick. His dad uh, cut those pockets. Oh, he's the best. Yeah, he's the best. 100%. He did my old diamond at my house too. Yeah, he's amazing. The best table mechanic in the business. Hundred oh, percent. Yeah, and boy, they made the, like, he did all the hard times tables, and they were all brutal. Yeah, <laughs> really, really tight Super tables. Tight. Yeah, but uh, I watched you play him, and what did you run? Seven and out on him. There was like this one match. How long ago was it? It wasn't that long ago. Uh, we played in in his pool room in uh, Sacramento. I don't. I think it might have been. Yeah, I think it might have been in hard times. In hard times in Sacramento. Uh, but it was like you played a perfect match. Perfect I mean, it match. Was, it was beautiful. I mean, you got perfect on every ball. Is this it right here? Yeah. It says, it says the, Yeah. The name of the the video is Absolute Perfection. Fedor Gorse set versus Oscar Dominguez. Oh yeah, that was this year. That's that's actually his pool room in Sacramento, which is hard times. 
Yeah, he bought Hard Times, which yeah. is amazing. It's an oh, amazing yeah. place. I, I played there once when I was uh, doing stand-up comedy up there. So were you guys playing 10-ball? Ten 10-ball, Ten yeah, with the Magic Rack. Yeah. The Magic Rack, for people that don't know, there's a, there's a regular rack where you put the balls in the rack. It's a wooden rack or a plastic rack, and it's shaped like a, a triangle. And then there's this plastic sheet that keeps the balls completely tight and it's not a rack like a normal rack it's something that you place the balls on and it ensures that all the balls are completely tight so in a situation like that and obviously you know this is just for people at home yeah the the balls will spread very evenly or very um uh, they 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 have a similar reaction every time so you you're playing for specific balls yeah, right. yeah, so, yeah. You have more control. You can actually control the ball that you can make on the break. Where yeah, versus the regular wooden rack, it's not really like that. It's yeah, some people get upset at the magic rack because really good players, when they have a very good controlled break, they either make the one on the side or they make the corner ball, and then they play in position on the one with the cue ball, and then they just get out over and over yeah. and over again. Um, but I I appreciate. Perfection. I appreciate watching something like this where someone just gets dead on every ball. It was fun <laughs> playing you out there, too. Oh, yeah, me too. It's fun, it was fun. fun watching, you know? I honestly uh, didn't think that you were that good, <laughs> but you played real good. <laughs> well, I was just happy I ran out the first game on you. Like, oh, yeah, you put some I pressure on one. me. At least some I got pressure one. On I had to get, make some tough shots, too. Yeah. That's a tough table, too, that four and a quarter inch. Yeah, diamond. Diamond. That's a. That's not an easy table. No, it's not. Yeah, but I got excited. I was excited to play you because I don't get a chance to. Play. I play my friend Sean, but I don't get a chance to play like you real him. elite players. I he wins some games. Yeah, so right. when I fuck up, <laughs> he gets out. He gets out. He can win some games, but not like you. You know. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it too. Hey, my pleasure. So, um, when you decided, like. Pool as a profession is uh, there's there's a small handful of people that make a good living. Oh, very small, yeah. Yeah, very small handful, and then everybody else is just basically doing it because they have a passion for yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a strange thing to dedicate your life to, like because a lot of people feel like there's it's one of those things where if you get really, really, really good at it. You go, damn! I could have got really good at something else, and I'd oh, be rich. For sure, for sure. Like if you got really good at tennis, you'd yeah. be rich. Yep. If you got really good at golf, you'd be rich. But honestly, the 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 way I see it, the game is growing nowadays, and yeah. uh, the prize money is getting bigger and bigger. It yeah. is. You well, Matchroom Pool is doing a great job. They put on a lot of tournaments, and you could watch them on DAZN, that the app, yeah, you know, the streaming app. But it's uh. It's a an underappreciated game that occasionally blows up in America. Like during when the Hustler came out, everybody wanted to play pool, and mm -hmm. then there was like a lull, and then the Color of Money came out with Tom Cruise and Paul Newman, and everybody wanted to play pool, and pool rooms exploded all over the country, and it was on ESPN, and it, but then slowly but surely it kind of fades, and yeah. that's it's in a position now where I think the internet is uh, really doing a good job of bringing it back. And I have some ideas of my own, what I want to do. And one of the things that I want to do is I want to host matches here. And uh, me and uh, my friend Tommy from uh, the East Coast, who's a really good player, do commentary and put it up on YouTube. Sure, that would so be great. Fun. I think, I think it would be <laughs> a fun be thing fun to do. Sure. 
And to get a guy like, you know, maybe you versus a guy like Mika Eminen or a guy like Shane Van Boning and have you guys play yeah. matches. Absolutely. Like, for prize money. That'd be fun. Yeah. You're good, right? Yeah. I think I'm try- I've been trying to figure out ideas to make pool more popular. For sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, that helps. I yeah. think that's the best one is me do commentary because um, I can't play good enough to play in a tournament, but I can, you know, I can play good enough that I understand what's going on. Yeah. You know? Sure. So there's a there's a hope. Well, that sounds real good. Yeah. So when you first started going to uh, Europe and playing, how old were you then? Uh, I was uh, 14 when I went to, or 13 when I went to my first Euro tour. So this is like uh, your parents fund this or someone else? Do you have a sponsor? No. Uh, what, so what happened was uh, when I was, uh, the very first year or two where I went to, uh, I was sponsoring myself. So I uh, spent my own money out of my own pocket and uh, did really good. I finished in the last 32, my very first year or two. And then uh, my father uh, passed away when I was 13 and uh Two years later, uh, after like uh, tough, tough times, uh, one guy. So I, I was always going to the pool room in Moscow, trying to hustle people. I was always <laughs> at thirteen. Tr- at thirteen, yeah. I mean, wow. I was uh, I was really passionate about the game, and uh, after school, I was always going to the pool room, trying to play with somebody. I mean, cheap, like t- mm. ten, twenty dollars, trying to make something. And also, it's good practice for me because. Uh, I mean, you. The more you play, the better you play. Yeah. And uh, there was one guy. Uh, his name is Mike Nikolaev. And uh, I know he was playing worse than me. And uh, we were playing for like fifteen bucks per set. So I was going, and you know, thinking that you know it's free money, forty-five bucks, win a couple of sets, and uh, go back home. I get there, and I only had like twenty bucks with me. I, I had no money. And uh, I ended up losing all of the sets, all three sets. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how it happened, but I I lost everything. And uh, uh, I told him that I'll pay. I'll pay him later. And then uh, the same evening, he messaged me. You know what? Uh, we have to meet again tomorrow. And uh, when I came to the pool room, he offered me a sponsorship. He said, "I'll I'll take care of you. You can pick whatever queue you want. And uh, you know, we have to." plan your career and uh, if you really want to make it then i'll help you really just one match you played one set against each other no we played three sets three sets i, I lost three all sets. of them yeah but even though you lost he still saw so much potential in you that he wanted to sponsor you. that's interesting yeah yeah uh there was there was a lot of uh, situations like this in my life honestly that i'm grateful and uh it's absolutely amazing how it happened uh, so uh yeah after this we started with uh, some european tournaments i went to norway sweden some uh Euro tours and i wasn't really winning but i had a slightly progression and i was always practicing and trying to get better and uh yeah like i said with johan rising coming to russia as a national coach at the same time that was perfect timing because uh mike told me that we can possibly work with johan individually later on which happened, and uh, that's how it all started. That's so fortunate. Yeah, it is. Isn't that crazy how that works? A one encounter with someone can change your entire life. Oh, yeah. Mike and his brother, Vladimir, they uh, they helped me so much 
and it's crazy how it happened. Then, then we went to Derby City Classic. People saw how I play, and then uh, how old were you then? Sixteen. Sixteen at the Derby City. So Mike, Mike, they wouldn't even let you in this year, right? I think you have to be. Last year they changed the rules because of the casino. Yeah. And I, I didn't play last uh, the year before. Well, it used to be on a boat, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is like, there's a term, riverboat gambler. I, I was uh, good friends with this guy who was a really hilarious uh, pool player uh, who used to call everybody, oh, he's a riverboat gambler. <laughs> like everybody who is like a wild, crazy gambler, he would call a riverboat gambler. So I thought it was so appropriate when they moved Derby City to an actual riverboat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I would imagine like, do they have to deal with waves? Does the, the boat move? I don't know. I really... <laughs> I mean, that sounds stupid for pool. It is, it is. I mean, unless that sucker's anchored into the ground, <laughs> like, it's yeah. going to move around. Like, the balls could shift. Yeah. Like, if somebody drives by and leaves a big wake, Yeah. you know, the the tables could move a little bit. So, yeah, what happened was uh, then the year after, I came to Derby, and I did good in that invitational tournament. And on the side, I used to always hustle and do something like bet on the matches and uh, trying to win a little more and then i uh actually what it was i was playing that invitational temple tournament and me and my friend maxim who was also was a pool player with me on the trip uh we used to bet on me playing in that tournament on every match and we didn't know the person that we were betting on it was uh alan and jason uh the brothers that came with me today ah so uh, we were betting and betting and betting, and then uh, I think the final match, I got into the finals, I played uh, Roberto Gomez. We asked him if you, know, you want to double or nothing or bet again, and they said, no, we're good. So I ended up losing, and then uh, they were staking uh, Skylar Woodward at the time. They were uh, putting, them, put it, putting Skylar in the tournament, and uh, I drew Skylar in uh, round 10 of Derby City Classic and beat him 9-1. to one. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That year. He's very good. Oh yeah, he is. He is. Uh, he's still a top player today. Yeah, and that's how I met the other two brothers, Alan and Jason. And that's that's oh, another. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Then. Well, was Skyler on the Moscone Cup this year? Was he on the U.S. team? Yeah. Um, the Moscone Cup, for people who don't know, is a really amazing event that they put on. Where it's every year. It's in December. It's November, December, end of November, or beginning of December. It's a. Uh, a team match between Europe and the United States. So you have all the top European players and they play all sorts of different ways. They play individually, one-on-one. -on -one. They play two versus two, which is very interesting. Like if you and I were playing two versus two and we were on the same team, you would make a shot and leave position for me and then I would make a shot and leave position for you, which is interesting because some of the guys are left-handed and some of the guys are right-handed. So you have to leave position for a left-handed shot. Yeah. Where you 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 know where it would be awkward for you to reach if you're right-handed, but it's perfect for left-handed. So there's a lot of like weird thinking, and then on top of that, there's the wildest crowd in all of pool. Oh yeah. But they're great because they're quiet when the player's down on the ball. Yeah, I mean they know what's going on. I yeah. All of them are pool fans, and they uh, they know when when they can yell and. I wanted can. to get out to Vegas to see it this year, but I was just too busy. I really wanted to go because I, it's it looks like so much fun to watch on TV because. There's so much screaming and cheering when someone makes a shot, and then everybody quiets down again. 
Yeah, this year that was uh, as wild as it could be, I think. Yes, it was very wild. Yeah. And Europe won this year. Yep. And unfortunately, you weren't allowed to play for the European team. I, I was allowed, but you I wasn't. Uh, they didn't I, pick you. I was just, I wasn't picked. Yeah. That's bullshit. Uh, I, mean, I think that's bullshit. I mean, yeah, I think so too. I think it's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because I you're Russian, so. 100%. I mean, it just seemed like they probably were like, look, Maybe it's not the the best time to put a Russian player in the Moscone Cup, and but it probably isn't. Maybe but, uh, maybe politically, I don't think they'd have a problem with it in America. Oh. No, because like when Russian fighters fight in the UFC, no one has a problem with it. It's like when when they're really good, you know, no one no one cares. No, and honestly, this year being in the United States, I stayed here since February, and I had a lot of support from American fans and. Uh, Everybody treated me so well that uh, I don't think there will be any problem. Not at all. No, this is a country of immigrants. Yeah. I mean, it's the yes. whole country. There's no one, I mean, unless you're Native American, this is a, and even them, they most likely, some of them came across the Bering Strait a long time ago, or, or some of them made it, might have been here originally. Mm -hmm. But this is a country primarily, the vast majority of the population, their grandparents or their parents or some or them, they came from another country. So the, I think we're more accepting of that here. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's tough, tough question for me because uh, I still don't really know the, the real reason why I wasn't picked. It's 100% because you're Russian. I'll just tell you the real reason. All right. It has <laughs> to be. You're, you're without doubt one of the best players in the world. Like I said, I think you're in the top five of the world. For sure. Like, you could win any tournament in the world, right? Don't you think? Yeah, I can. Yeah, any 100%. tournament. You enter, you could win. Yeah. If you're in the finals against who? Jason Shaw, whoever it is, you have a very good chance of winning. I agree, yeah. But that elite level, when you get to that level, the Shane Van Bonings, you, uh, Dennis Orcolo, like, anybody can win. Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. And every everybody, we have a different winner every tournament, mm -hmm. too. yeah. But for the rare people that can win, like the U, like how many times has Shane won the U.S. Open? Five. Crazy. It right? is. That's crazy. Or Earl, how many times did Earl win the U.S. Open? The same, I think. I invited Earl on the podcast. He didn't even get back to me. <laughs> Earl was mad at me because I did an impression of him. Have you ever seen my impression yeah, of yeah, him? Yeah, that's, that's great. <laughs> but I, I can only do an impression of him because I'm a fan. Yeah. Like, if I can do that voice, the only reason the only reason you can do that voice <laughs> is because you've watched my game. I'm a giant fan of that guy. Like, oh, yeah. when I was doing that, that was with Justin Collett from the Action Report, who was, uh, play that, Jamie. Because for, <laughs> for people who don't know, this is my best impression. Like, out of all the impressions that I do, I can do a bunch of, I can do, like, Mike Tyson. My voice is not good at impressions, but there's a few that I could do. Here, My rewind. Justin with TheActionReport.com. We're joined here tonight live from Hollywood Billiards in Los Angeles, California, Mr. Earl Strickland, ladies and gentlemen. Earl, how are you doing tonight? Pool is a beautiful <laughs> game played by ugly people. Okay, first of all, how are you going to play pool if you're not properly equipped? Where's your beekeeper's outfit? You don't have no ass weights. I don't see you in waders. For people who don't understand, <laughs> Earl is very eccentric, and he wears, like, weights on his arms and shit. Yeah. You have to put Earl Strickland picture to understand. When I was a kid, you couldn't jump with fucking jump cue. That ain't jumping. What the fuck is that? You got a tiny little cue and you're all pleased as punch? You got a big smile on your face like you just did something? Get the fuck out. I jump with a Muchi. I jump full table with a Muchi. How about that? How strong is that? 
What's your plans for the rest of the year, though? I mean, you, you've got a lot going on. A lot of it involves marijuana. I think that's, I think that's what he got upset at. <laughs> Probably. How does he know? If you, now play a video of Earl Strickland actually talking. Because there's a video of me and Earl. When I met him, I don't even know if he remembers when I met him. I met him after that. And he's like, why are you picking on me? I'm like, I love you. I'm a big fan. <laughs> How can you watch pool? All the guy does is pick Wim off the table and sweep it with his hand. No offense. They won't even shoot. Johnny Archer, Rouse K, and Charlie Williams will pull pool all together. <laughs> okay, that's good enough. So that's my best impression. It's oh, the yeah. most obscure impression. In all of the world of entertainment, and <laughs> yeah. I picked Earl. It is. It's a perfect copy. Of I'm getting, I want you on, Earl. Come on. Come on, Earl. I'm your That'd fan. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. I That'd love the fun. guy. Oh, I, yeah. I'm a giant fan of his, and he's absolutely one of the greatest, if not the greatest, nine-ball player of all time. Yeah, and, and the greatest character in the game. Oh, sure. my God. For sure. I mean, for people who don't know, he, he wears, like, tape all over the tips of his fingers so that it looks like he's got golf balls in the end of his yeah. fingers and weights all over the body too yeah he wears weights on his body so he stays still yeah he wears weights on his elbow sometimes sometimes he wears uh, like shooting glasses like tactical yeah. glasses he wears headphones, giant yeah. headphones so he can't hear yeah. anybody I mean, he's very athletic too he runs every day yeah does, like thousand push-ups and sit-ups every day and, and he's you know Super, super accomplished, and still to this day can play top flight world world class pool. And he's in his sixties. Yeah, I mean, he was on Moscone. Yes, Cup. he was on Moscone Cup. And played really well. He's playing with like a very large tip now. What is he doing? He's good. This he is his some, new thing. It's like a fourteen millimeter tip. It looks like he has some weird cue. It's uh, it's like a break cue shaft with the break cue ferrule, but the playing tip and the I don't know. It's like super super thick, and. Uh, he never lets anybody touch his, his <laughs> cue, so I, I don't know. Well, he has tennis wrap all over the yeah, handle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was the first guy, I think, to play with an extension completely like attached to his cue all the time. Yeah, and I think Shane Van Boning is also playing with an extension because, yeah. of, because of Earl. I think so, too. Yeah, I think he actually played Earl, and he's like, let me try that. And yeah. Like, oh, shit. There's something to it. I know you don't like the extension, but there is something to it. When you have that extension on, it seems like there's a little bit more momentum. I mean, it changes the balance, and yeah. that's what players like about it, I think. Yeah, like a lot of top players now play oh, with yeah. at least a four-inch extension. Yeah, and a tiny one, too. Mm -hmm. The one-inch one, one inch extension. Oh, really? Yeah. Just for just a little bit of weight out back, mm -hmm. just a little extra weight out back. Yeah, I'm uh, like I said, uh, I wanted to get Earl on, but he didn't want to do it. But I'm like, I think... It'd be interesting to talk to you because I just think your journey and just to be such a young guy and to make this trek from come from Russia and come to the United States and now live here and play pool. I'm just fascinated. Like, what is that like? Is it is does it feel strange to you? I mean, it feels really uh, strange, but it's been already eight months, so uh, I got really used to that already. Do you have a permanent residence in in America? Now? So uh, <laughs> actually. <coughs> I actually should apply for a green card this week. My girlfriend Christina, she already got a green card uh, last weekend. So, Your girlfriend plays too. Yeah, and she's good. Yeah, well, that's the the key to a relationship with a pool player. You can't be playing with non pool players, or <laughs> you can't be like have a relationship with non pool players because they're not going to understand. No, it's tough. I mean, pool players they're traveling a lot and playing pool all day. I mean, yeah. how can you how can you like it if you're not? 
No, pool you, related. I think you have to be involved. So it, it narrows the dating pool for pool players. Like, um, like how many guys date pool players that are actual pool players? Like Josh Filler, his Josh wife Filler. is a pool player. Tyler Steyer. His his wife is a pool player. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who else? There was someone else. Uh, Whatever. Yeah. Someone else. But there are pool groupies. Yeah. And I, I found that out with my friend Johnny. Because my friend Johnny was a really good player when I lived in New York. And, like, girls wanted to fuck him because he was a pool player. I was like, <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> he, he's a big, fat guy. <laughs> oh, but, yeah. But girls loved him because he was so good. He was such a good pool player. You know, um, I don't know if you ever read this book. Um, it's a book called uh, McGurdy. Uh, Life of a Billiards Hustler, very interesting book about Robert Byrne wrote it, and it's about a guy who, you know, Robert Byrne, the guy who writes all those instructional books. Yeah, yeah I've heard of him, but I never read the book. He wrote this book about this guy who was a famous pool hustler in the the Depression and traveled around. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting um, book for anybody to read, not just someone who's interested in pool, because it's about this person who's involved in just deep struggle, like riding around on railroad cars and begging for food and you know it was it wasn't an easy life by any stretch of the imagination but um what was my point um i forgot my point oh that's this is my point so he they were they were in a pool hall once and uh nixon was on tv and he was the president and he was with this guy and the guy goes look at that guy president of the united states and he can't make a ball <laughs> That's how pool players think. Yeah. They don't give a fuck about you if you can't play pool. I mean, some of them are like that, yeah. Yeah. 100%. No, a lot of them are like that, man. That's like one thing that I'm proud of. That's like I've played pool with some people, and they're like, oh, you actually can play some pool. Well, that's how I was today. <laughs> <laughs> I played Mike Siegel once, and I broke a rent. Well, I didn't break a rent out. He missed a ball, and I ran out the first set on him, too. And he yeah. talked about it on a podcast, too. Wow. So was, I was very proud because he said, you know, that I'm a really good pool player. I'm like, oh, Mike Siegel said that. That's wow. Like, I mean, that's an achievement. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. He has a, a podcast now. It's him and Kim Davenport and uh, David Pierce. I think I saw it. Yeah. The International Open this year. They were doing something. Yeah. 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 It's uh, it's cool. I'm, I'm glad that people are, you know, the, the, because of the Internet, there's like a whole thing with live streaming. So mm -hmm. there's like live stream matches and there's live stream matches that people do for pay-per-view. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it's also helping the game to grow, I think. I mean, yeah. Yeah. There's still guys that don't travel and don't do anything and they stay in their hometown and they're like elite players too, like Justin Bergman. Yeah. I mean, Justin is an elite player. He's uh, as elite as it could be. but As he, elite as it gets. Yeah. There's a video of him. Pull this up. Justin Bergman runs 18 racks. That's That's been recently, but it was on the bar table. It was on a bar table. Yeah. Was it a seven foot or a six foot? Seven foot. Seven foot. So it's not as impressive, but it's fucking crazy. When you watch him do it, it does. it's not as impressive because he's playing on uh, a smaller table. But, I mean, holy shit. But I mean, also, it's a, it's a nine ball with the magic crack. Yes. So it's, right. it's the easiest game you can ever imagine on a pool table. Yes. Easiest game you can imagine on a pool table, but still. Yeah, of course. I mean, the guy 18 ran, pack is an 18 pack. Now, he plays with one of these Keelwood shafts. Yeah. What do you think of those? 
I actually tried his shaft and I'm I'm the big fan, but I've tried a lot of keel wood shafts and they're not I mean, they're not as consistent as carbon fiber, I think. Well, it's 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 a different thing because it's you have a different feel, right? Yeah, yeah, completely different feel. Um, but you know Richard uh Sue? Yeah. He makes those tsunami uh, shafts. Those are really good. I've yeah, got like one him. of those for my Southwest. I like it a lot, and I'm, I'm going to have him make me some for other other cues. See, it's very very personal when it comes to cues. I yeah, mean, you like extensions, skill wood shafts. I like non extensions and carbon fiber, and we could be playing completely different styles. That's what's great about pool, I think. Well, I like carbon fiber too. I think it's uh, it, it used to be back in the day people would play with fiberglass mm -hmm. cues, and they were a lemon. Like you saw someone playing with like a, a a black fiberglass shaft, you're like, oh, this guy sucks, because <laughs> yeah. like they they kind of sucked back then. Yeah. But then Q Tech, which is your sponsor, uh -huh. started sponsoring Earl, and then they eventually sponsored Shane and a bunch of other elite players, and they started making like really good pool cues. Yeah, yeah, they did, and I think they were the first ones that were making this fiberglass shafts that yeah. were really popular back in the day well remember they used to make a wooden shaft that's covered in like a thin sheet of clear plastic i think that's what shane used to play with yes back in the day earl it looks like his was sanded down yeah it looked like he sanded the shit out of that clear stuff and got down to the wood <laughs> and he was playing with like a very small millimeter thin i think one, it was yeah. like a 12 millimeter shaft uh, probably there. thinner yeah how do you um how do you fall on like what weight to play with, what millimeter to play with? Do you, did you slowly evolve? Because you play with a fairly light cue. You pay, play with an 18-ounce cue. For a lot of people that don't know, that's on the lighter side. Mm -hmm. And your your tip is 11.5? 12.5. Oh, excuse me, 12.5. You used to play with 11 and I a half? used to play with 11.7, and I would used to shape it down a little more, so it probably was 11.5. And that was, was that the Z shaft? No, that was actually the Jacoby Edge shaft oh. that I used to play with. Actually, that's another good story. I came to Derby City Classic the very first time, and Mike was a Jacoby Q's ambassador, or he was a dealer in Russia, and uh, he said, you have to pick a Q when we go to U.S., and I didn't want to change my Q on the tournament right before I start uh, playing. And he said, it's all right, you you can do it, you know. And I picked the Q from the wall, and I started hitting, and I, uh, and I really, really liked the Q. And I ended up beating, like, everybody. I played so good. Uh, that's 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 amazing for me because it never happened to me after. Like right right off the rack. Like yeah, that is unusual. Cause yeah, usually, usually you have to experiment with cues and find what's what's better for you mm -hmm. and what suits you. And uh, that's actually how I found that twelve point five and five is better for me. And uh, I've experimented so much that it's uh, it's crazy. For me, it's so fascinating because what the game is is you are rolling a ball purely with the force of your arm and the weight of the cue, and you're trying to calculate the exact or very close to the exact amount of revolutions a ball is going to make over the course of like a nine-foot table. Yeah. And for people that don't play it and don't know how nuts that is, like some of the shots that you made out there, I was like, damn. <laughs> Because you're making these long shots, but you got within inches of where you wanted to be. Yeah. And that's just like a roll, one extra roll, and you're fucked. Oh, yeah. You know? It's, it's such a game of just millimeters. It's a game of millimeters. It's a game yeah. changer, for sure. 
But that's why the feel of the cue is so important. Yeah. That's why, you know, and getting accustomed to what happens with that lighter weight cue or that heavier weight cue. Like a lot of the older players, like uh, Efren Ray has always played with a very heavy cue. I think his cue was more than 21 ounces. Yeah, and they liked high deflection shafts. Mm. Same as same as all the Asians. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't really know the reason why, but they all like the high deflection shaft. Yeah, they like those stiff Southwest style shafts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Do you think it's just because that's what they started with and they're accustomed to what happens when you hit the ball? I think so, yeah. I think so. For people who don't know what we're talking about when it comes to high deflection and low deflection, the way you hit a ball with English, say, so if I hit a ball and I hit a ball on the right side of the ball, it'll actually throw the ball off to the left. And so everybody calculates that when you shoot a ball. Like sometimes when you're aiming at a ball with a, a shaft that has high deflection, you're really aiming to miss, but you're aiming with deflection so that you know that when the ball actually leaves the cue, it's going to kind of squirt off to the right, and it'll make the ball perfectly. Yeah, sometimes you'll have to aim to the right side of the ball to hit the left side. Yeah, but all of that is only available in your head if you're playing all the time. Oh, yeah, it takes a lot of practice, of course. You get a feel for pool. When I was playing, when I lived in New York and I was playing every day, the the best feeling in the world was when you're in stroke. Like you've been playing every day, eight hours a day, and you can get out there and you can just fire balls in. Oh, and yeah. And you just have that... You just have that touch, and it just it comes and it goes. It, it is. Yeah. It, it's, it's a crazy thing. It doesn't really matter how, how much you practice. You have these days when you just feel everything. Like yeah. When everything just comes together and you just don't miss. And the problem with me is I like to work out. And if you lift weights, you're fucking, your feel's gone. I know. That's why I'm very <laughs> slim. <laughs> well, do you know Willie Hoppy? He wouldn't even drive a car on the days that he had a match. Wow. Wouldn't even drive a car. He's like, I'm not touching shit. I'm just going to leave my Well, I have my own things, too, and every player has them, but uh, that's that's too crazy for me. But his was like he didn't want to use his arms. (laughs) He he didn't want any strain at all on his arms, even just turning. I bet back in the Willie Hoppy days, I don't even know if they had power steering back then. Oh, yeah? I don't know. Did they? What what year was Willie Hoppy around? So Willie Hoppy, by the way, wasn't even necessarily always playing pool. He was more of a billiards player. Died in uh-huh. 1959. So okay. So when did they invent power steering? Let's find that out. Because like that makes sense. Because I have a, an old Porsche and it doesn't have power steering. Mm-hmm. And every time I turn the wheel, I got a fucking. <laughs> you know, it's like it involves a lot of strain. So maybe if he was playing, it was driving around some old bullshit car. Mm. Technically a 1926, but I can't imagine that it was fully on every car or everything by then. Mm, yeah, and it probably sucked. <laughs> Even though they had it, it probably was terrible. Yeah, probably. But, yeah, lifting weights is the worst. Like, I'll come here from the gym, and then I'll try to play with uh, Sean, and I can't make a ball. Yeah, you feel like it's like a toothpick to you, right? I don't know, it's just your arm's not communicating with you right. But it's actually really good to play after your workout because then your muscle memory kicks in and after practice sessions like this, you will be playing better. Maybe. I think the only thing... Your arms are exhausted, though, when you work out. So, like, all the muscle fibers are torn and they have to sort of rebuild. And so the communication with your arm is like... It's like your arm's drunk. Mm Mm-hmm. 
it's not thinking well. I think it might not be a bad time to practice, just to like set up some balls and just practice using the weight of the cue and stroke through it. But if I had to play like a serious game and I just oh, worked no. out, I'd be fucked. Oh, I don't have any confidence. Of course, yeah, yeah, it's the worst thing. Yeah, do you do anything before you play? Like get you get a massage or anything like that? Does that ever help you? Uh, yeah, I stretch a lot. So stretch. I, I, yeah, I have a lot of problems with my back mm. because because of the way that I grew up and uh, the way I had my stance set up and when I was a kid. Oh. So I have to stretch every day after the practice and before every morning. What part of your back? Your lower back? The lower back, yeah. Have you ever done anything to strengthen that? Uh, I'm doing some core exercises, yeah. I mean, I'm doing some planking, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not very into it. You're not very into exercise. No, no. But I want to be. <laughs> you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a bunch of things that you can do for lower back that can help you a lot. Um, I'll show you afterwards. We have a gym next door. Well, I, I bought a thing, the machine that called uh, hyper extension. I think. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. what. That's what I do. I mean, that's for the lower back, right? Yes. Yeah, that'll help a lot. Yeah. There's another machine called the reverse hyper, which is amazing, but it's a very specialized machine. You have to go to like a real strength and conditioning gym mm -hmm. for them to have something like that. But that's really good because it actually decompresses your back as well as strengthens it. Yeah. Well, the thing with me, I have one side of my back which is really tight and the other one which is really really uh, weak so i have scoliosis and it really makes difficult for me to strengthen both sides have you so, always had scoliosis or do you think this is pool I think related it, i think it's pool related yeah you know um they've done these uh examinations of bodies of archers from like you know 2000 years ago like mm -hmm. guys who pulled a bow and so you'll pull a bow with your right side so one side is pulling and the other side is just holding and so you have one side that's like very muscular and the other side it's totally imbalanced like my friend John Dudley he's a professional archer mm -hmm. and he's a professional bow hunter and he's an archery coach and his back is so fucked up because for decades he's just been pulling with his right arm and so his right side is like his whole body's back's all funky yeah. because of that. Well, it's kind of the same for me. But since I started to stretch and really take care of it, it's been uh, it's been better. I mean, I'm 22, and my back is already like uh, 45. I don't know. 50. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you seen the documentary on Jeanette Lee? Yeah. Well, she had really bad scoliosis, mm -hmm. and I didn't know how bad it was, which is so impressive that she was able to play so well. Because they put these giant rods in her back. Yeah, that's crazy. It's, oh, my God. The scar goes up her entire back. And there's all these screws and shit in there that are trying to straighten her back out. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's it's crazy. They it's don't have to do that to sure. you. No, no. I didn't do any surgeries. Or but we, do, have you? if you tightened up the other side, if you strengthened up the other side, there's got to be some exercises that you could do to balance your body For out. sure, for sure. You're for just sure. eventually going to do that? I eventually yeah, have this is to do Jeanette it, yeah. Lee's back. Look at the size of that scar. I mean, that is like that's crazy. That's like a two and a half foot scar. That's it a, is. That's her entire back. It's wild. Yeah, I don't want none of that. So I have to. I, have I don't to think do they some. do that anymore. I don't think they do it like that anymore. There's all sorts of things you can do. I mean, scoliosis is obviously a very complicated uh, ailment. But um, there's people that believe that spinal decompression and strengthening and yoga exercises, 
like I was following this lady on Instagram and she had scoliosis and she fixed it with yoga and stretching and well I was going to some uh gym that called functional patterns or something like that mm -hmm. in Russia and they told me that I uh they found some program that I can uh work just on one side for my back and they uh but the uh, unfortunately, I can't go back and do that, so I have to find something else here, and I didn't really have time this year. It was crazy. I was playing pool nonstop. How many hours of, of pool do you play a day? Uh, like I said, it's it's different. When I practice and I don't have any tournaments, I try to play more, like six, eight hours a day, and just straight practicing. But when I'm in the tournament season and just have a day in between the tournaments, I play probably two or three hours just to stay in stroke. So when you say practicing, are you setting up drills? Both drills. Uh, I work on specific parts of the game that are weak and then I want to strengthen. And, uh, you know, the break, the jumps, kicking, there's a lot of different aspects in the game that you can practice. Do you break with one of those break rack things, or do you just keep racking the balls? No, I actually ordered break rack uh, thing a couple of months ago. It's pretty sweet. It is. It is. Yeah, it's a great thing. I mean, it leaves a big white spot in the middle of your pool table because the ball keeps bouncing. Well, I put the <laughs> double tape oh, underneath. So that's smart. Yeah. Yeah, but that there's a bunch of those interesting inventions that yeah. people have come up with. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's super sweet. Yeah, when you have a great break, like a guy like Shane that has a killer break. Like, it's such an advantage. I watched a, a match once. I forget who he was, I think he was playing Copigny, and he was playing 10 ball, and he made six balls in the break. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, break became so big nowadays that it's uh, it's probably 80% of the game playing nine ball and 10 ball. Especially with that magic rack, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, with the, with the wood rack, it's a little bit different. It depends who will be raking the balls, what are the rules, and uh, I actually like the rules that they do nowadays. They uh, they have the referees at every table, mm -hmm. raking with a wood rack, and they don't touch any balls once they remove the rack, so it's completely random. Mm, that and is probably better, as long as the referee's giving you a good rack. Yeah. The worst yeah. is when you're playing someone, and they purposely leave a little space there, and you hear that slug sound. Yeah, that happened to me too. Yeah. It's gonna happen. Yeah, especially on the big stage, big match. It's, uh, I mean, it hurts. Yeah. Well, there's so much at stake. Oh there's yeah. Of course. Room for shenanigans. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, but the 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 break shot in pool is also like from a spectator perspective. Like people don't like to see a soft break. They like to see someone smash the yeah. balls and then scatter all over the place randomly. That's why I really like the break that they have now because everybody's just whacking them and hidden hope and believe that something goes in yeah well the there was a, a time where they were making people spot the nine ball on the spot because they thought that would help but then people figured around that too i mean pool players are figuring out the breaks so easy and so quick that yeah. it's uh it's it's a joke i mean it doesn't matter which format you create with the magic rack they will always figure it out yeah well they figure out they'll just practice all day and figure out which ball should be in which positions and whether to use a cut break where you hit it on the side or hit it straight from the middle. Mm -hmm. What do you think about, like, breaking from the box? When they, they had rules like that for a while, you couldn't break from the corner because you could make a better bridge off the side rails and people were hitting it harder and hitting it at that angle, you got more action on the balls. Uh, well, they used that uh, breaking rule at Metrum events nowadays. They really? Have, they have a nine ball on the spot and break box. 
not not a, like a tiny break box that you mm-hmm. can break from, and it's in the center. So uh, you really have to cut 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 a lot, cut the one ball, and uh, you still can make both wing ball and the one ball on the side, but it's way way tougher. That would be a, a place where I would think like physical fitness would come into play. Like if you were stronger, you know, you could if in that motion like maybe there's a, a thing that you could do with like bands or something like that where you develop a stronger break uh i mean i saw a lot of different pull machines that develop special muscles really yeah in asia they they have them but i never was what there. yeah they have like workout pool machines yeah kind of kind of can you find them online uh i think so yeah what are they called i don't know I don't know. There is a pool machine called Hips H I B S in Russia. That the so it's like a round thing with the pool ball there, and it just goes goes around. So you just keep shooting the cue ball, and what the Asian machine has is you your cue is always going straight in the same line. Mm-hmm. So you're developing the right muscles, and your muscle memory remembers the straight cueing. Are you cueing? Are you putting the shaft through a tube or something? Like, how is it always going in a straight line? Uh, yeah, it's kind of like a tube. Yeah, because Buddy Hall had a thing like that for a while, where he was selling. It was like a, a tube that sat on a table, a small tube mm-hmm. with like little legs, and you would make a bridge, and you would the whole thing would be like sliding your cue through that tube. I think it's it's really helpful. I don't see these things, and I think if I were using it when I was a kid, it would help me a lot. Because some people, they're cueing the ball, and they don't even realize they're kind of going through the ball sideways. Yeah, and, and even myself, even myself, I noticed that it's not it's crooked a little bit. Nobody's perfect, but... Uh, Do you film yourself? Yeah, that's, that's what I did a lot uh, when I was 16, 17. You know, I'm like a pool geek. I'm always trying to figure out what's wrong and work on mistakes, and... Uh, I used to analyze a lot of things. Yeah. Well, when you were 16 and 17, one thing that's interesting is that you had access to the internet. Yeah. You had access to pool matches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched a lot of pool matches. How much did that help you? A lot. And that's actually what people don't understand, that they can learn a lot just by watching but and not playing. Mm. You definitely can. You can, you can learn a lot about where uh, pathways that people like a pro takes. Yeah, like how you, to run balls, see, yeah, the strategy of the game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, can even, you can even work on your fundamentals. Mm-hmm. N- you know the player Nick Vandenberg? Sure. He used to work on his fundamentals, from what I heard, through hypnosis. So he was closing his eyes ah. and trying to repeat the stroke while he was uh, asleep. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. That's next level. Yeah, it is. It is. Do they drug test people at yeah. these events? What do they test for? Uh, I don't know, but we have a drug test uh, on all the Metrum events, I believe. One thing I think you should definitely drug test for is beta blockers. What is it? Beta blockers, uh, they cut your adrenaline. So uh, you don't get antsy. Like, mm. you don't get nervous yeah, when I mean, you're that's, shooding. That's a big thing in pool. It's sport. a big thing in pool, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think uh, they use beta blockers. Uh, people have been caught using beta blockers for a lot of games because um, anxiety and stress, which is, uh, you know, look, if you can make a great shot under pressure, it's wonderful. It's a, it's a great feeling. Yeah. 
but if you had zero pressure, you would play a better. Of, a couple of different things, of course. Yeah. yeah. So if you were in a big tournament, but you were on beta blockers, you probably wouldn't feel any of those nerves. And like I've seen people that are shooting a nine ball for a lot of money, and you see their hand shaking. Oh yeah. And you see they have to put the cue down and yeah, <sighs> take a deep breath. Yeah. And they, sometimes they forget to breathe. And you can see them. They're like. <sighs> Yeah. You know? Yeah, 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 of course. Well, pool's one of those things where when you're it's it's one moment. There's one moment and you're playing and maybe it's a race to 12 and it's 11 to 11 and you and I are playing and I have one shot on the nine ball and this is for everything and if I miss and if I hang that ball, you're going to win. But if I make it, I'm going to win. So it comes down to all this playing comes down to this one brief moment. And the walls close in on you. It's like, and it makes it very difficult for people if they don't have like a very specific mindset or pre-shot routine that they approach a shot with. They can get caught up in what's called like an open loop system where you just kind of like let the cue go. Ah! And we've seen... You've seen that. Everyone's yeah. seen that. Yeah, hundred percent. They just miss the ball by like a full diamond. They dodge yeah. the ball, and you're like, "What the fuck happened?" Well, he, he spazzed out. So, do you have a pre-shot routine? Yeah, of course I do. Otherwise, uh, it's it's impossible to play under pressure, like you said. What is your pre-shot routine? How do you do it? Uh it's secrets. But uh... secrets. <laughs> Come on, give up the secrets, bro. Uh, I mean, now it's so automatically that I don't really think about it. But uh, before I was used, to, I used to always stand up on the line of my shot and kind of visualize what I'm gonna do, decide what speed, what spin, and how I'm gonna shoot. Like I already visualized the whole process how I'm shooting the ball, and I even can imagine where the cue ball will land after the shot. And then once I figure it out, and I'm ready to shoot, I go down. And then I. Uh, do a couple of pre-strokes, do the pose on my last uh, backswing, then I shoot. Execute. Always pause. I always pose, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I That changed my game a lot when I started pausing. Oh, it's way better timing, and you can, I think you can analyze things better Yeah. that way. Some guys pause with the tip in forward. On the cue ball, yeah. Yeah, and, and then um, they draw back and shoot, and some guys pause on the backswing. Mm -hmm. where, do you, where do you pause? I pause on my backswing. That's the buddy hallway. He was the first guy that I ever saw do it. He had a long pause, where people called it the Buddy Hall pause. Yeah. Because he would like hold back and shoot through. Mm -hmm. And when Buddy Hall was playing, there's a great book. Uh, it's not a great book, but it's it's an interesting book um, that um, his uh, road uh, guy that he would travel with wrote a book about him. And um, back in his day, in Buddy Hall's day, they all took speed. They all took amphetamines. So they were all, like, he was real skinny at the time. And, oh, like, shit. these guys, because they would play for, like, 12 hours, 15 hours, 16 hours. They would pl play until somebody went bust. And sometimes they would play for 24 hours, 48 hours. They would just keep fucking playing over and over and over again. So they'd be just whacked out on amphetamines <laughs> playing pool. But the way it's been explained to me, I've never taken amphetamines, and I've never played pool on anything other than marijuana, Yeah, but which helps a lot. That's why I said that about Earl. Like uh, yeah. marijuana helps a lot. I don't know if you ever. Do you ever smoke marijuana? Yeah, I did. One once upon a time. Uh, yeah. It, was. it enhances feel. 
like marijuana like makes you more sensitive to things and i feel like it it enhances my my touch like where everything's going i, I could focus on things more well it's also very individual i think yeah for me it was uh was a uh, bizarre it was a uh, it was, yeah, yeah, it wasn't very good, <laughs> especially playing pool. Yeah, well, it, that can happen too. Yeah, yeah it's it's also something that you. I think marijuana is something that you have to learn. You have to learn like what what the effects are, what's the right dose, how much to do. Like I I smoke it before I go on stage. I smoke it before I write. I I used to smoke it before jujitsu all the time. A lot of jujitsu players smoke pot, mm-hmm. and they smoke pot and roll. And I always said that it made my jujitsu like quite a bit better. Like when I when I rolled and I was on jujitsu, I was m- quite a bit better than I was when I was sober. Well, for us, it's 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 illegal to do it on the professional stage, right. right? For a reason, yeah. Because I think it isn't. A, I mean, I've said this about jujitsu, and I'll say it about pool. I think marijuana is a performance-enhancing drug with some things. Possibly, yeah. It That's definitely cool. is for comedy writing. For comedy writing, marijuana is a performance-enhancing drug. It, mm. it, it 100% enhances your performance when you're writing. For that kind of writing. Because, like, I write silly shit, <laughs> you know? And when I'm silly with pot, like, silly ideas come to your head more often. But for those guys, when they were taking amphetamines, what they said was, and I've talked to someone who who's played on them, he said the balls, like, you could see edges on the balls differently. Like it almost like where there was a bunch of edges instead of a round surface, they would see like a different geometry to the balls. I believe that. And they'd see lines more clearly. They were just like hyper focused and like, you know, just like laser beam locked in. Well, that's the difference between pool players too. Like somebody is so talented and I, I believe that some players have a better vision, like a better eye. Mm-hmm. Like Jason Shaw, I believe he has like the best eye in the pool world. They call him Eagle Eye. Yeah, that's his for a reason. Name. Yeah, yeah. No, he's ridiculous. Yeah, that guy can. He shoots like long, hard shots. Yeah, and like just fires them in. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's another one of those guys. It's like there's you know there's this small like we we're talking about the small handful who could just beat anybody in the world mm-hmm. and he just won he just beat rather the world straight pool record where he had there was like he touched a ball and so they made it like 669 but he kept running mm-hmm. and got to like 700 and something where the previous record like Willie Moscone had a record back in the day. It was like 500 and something balls. 526, yeah. But that was on an eight-foot table, wasn't it? Yeah, and bigger pockets. Five-inch pockets, eight-foot table. But he did it on a nine-foot. And then... um, John Schmidt. John Schmidt beat that, right? Yeah, 620-something, I think. Right. And then Jason Shaw beat that. And Jason Shaw's not even a straight pool player, which is crazy. No, and that's that's the thing with the shooters. Yeah. I mean, nine-ball players will take over. Well, that was the same with Earl, too. You know, when Earl Strickland started playing straight pool, he'd just start running hundreds. And yeah. everybody's like, Jesus Christ, yeah. he doesn't even play the game. Like, imagine if he understood the patterns, like those guys who play straight pool all the time. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, it's completely different. They they just never miss. And for people who don't know what straight pool is, straight pool is the old school game that was in the movie The Hustler with Jackie Gleason and Paul Newman. And what straight pool was was always the king of pool games because – you would play whether it was to 125 points or 150 points, 
and you rack all 15 balls, and the opening break is a soft break where you're trying to leave no shot for your opponent. So you're just kind of clipping the edge of the ball, and you're trying to leave the cue ball as far away from the stack as possible with everything as close as possible so there's no shot. And when you the pressure of a shot then becomes very high because if you miss and you go into the rack and spread the balls out, a really elite player could run. Like I saw Mike Siegel do that with a guy. The guy um, made a shot, missed, and Mike Siegel ran 125 balls and out. The guy never got a chance to shoot again. And that's commonplace with, like, the really, really elite players. Yeah. I mean, I played the straight pool tournament in uh, October. And there was a group stage where I had to play five matches. And two matches, I ran 125 and out. We played race to 125 points. And two matches, I've lost. I didn't play as good. And the third match, I ran 107. And I didn't get out through my group. I just... I finished fourth in my group. Wow. So the level of players are increasing every year. And I, straight I think pool. the level of players right now is as high as it's ever been. Yeah. And I say this as a someone who really respects, like, the old school players. Like, I love to watch, like, old school matches. But I watched an old school match uh, recently between Jimmy Rempe and Mike Siegel. And I was kind of amazed at the shots they missed. Yeah. I mean, if you watch... The game compared to what we play nowadays, it's it's completely different. Yeah, the the best players I think ever are around right now. No, 100%. but I think if you had a guy like Earl Strickland, Earl Strickland's still elite today. So he maybe is not the best example because he's continued to grow with the game. I think the best players back then, if you put them in the same pressure environment with the the same level of play that guys have now, they would probably be at that level too. But back then. The players just, they weren't the same level. Yeah, but also the game was completely different. The environment was different. The equipment was different. Mm -hmm. You know, they used to play in worn, worn in cloth, really thick cloth, mm -hmm. and dirty equipment, dirty balls. So it's, it's, the break didn't matter as much. Everybody was just breaking hard and hoping for the best. Yeah, they didn't have uh, a sophisticated kicking method either. Like, yeah. I think when the Filipinos came here and, like, guys like Efren started kicking balls to get safe, that's when people started really opening their eyes to what was possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, the back, like, what's interesting to me, too, is that, like, the Filipino players, a lot of them played three-cushion billiards, and they learned how to kick by understanding how the balls are bouncing off the rails in a table with no pockets. Mm -hmm. And then because of that deep understanding of angles and how hard to hit in English, and they developed this like insane kicking game. Yeah, I mean, they all, they all say it's a, it's a feeling, but uh, in the end of the day, it's all practice. And uh, there is many, many different systems you can use for kicking. And I really believe that some of the Filipinos are really super talented and they have uh, that feel for kicking but uh a lot of shots they just use different systems yeah it's it's also really amazing how many good players come from the philippines oh it's unbelievable unbelievable i went to philippines when i was 15 what was that like uh it was crazy i went with my friend and uh i uh i was playing everybody you know i was playing a bartender that i couldn't beat I was 15, and I was, I, was, I was thinking I'm good. I mean, I was coming there to play good players, but I ended up playing everybody, and I was just amazed how, how good everybody's playing over there. Like, the guy who works 
24 hours behind the bar, just never plays pool. I mean, he's just, just a regular player in some random pool room can run a couple of racks playing nine ball. That's how, how crazy it is. For me, it's insane. If you walked in, into the bar here or anywhere else, I mean, would you imagine that the guy will run a two-pack of nine ball? Probably not. Yeah, most likely not. And it, it happened multiple there. times for me there. Really? So yeah. the, does the level seemed higher there? Yeah, yeah, and the game is really, really big. I mean, the taxi drivers, they know who, everybody knows who Efren Reyes is, you know, Francisco Bustamante. I've met people that are Filipino immigrants to America, and and they'll tell me they're Filipino. I go, do you know who Efren Reyes is? And they're like, Bata. Yeah. Like, yeah. they know who he is. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Like, it's Pool, like. Pool is really, really big in the Philippines. Well, Pool came over the Philippines in the 1950s when the GIs were over there. So American GIs were over there, and they brought Pool to the Philippines, and the Filipinos just took over. Yeah. It's pretty crazy, like, how that transpired, because when they play over there, they're playing on very tough conditions, because the tables are all damp, because it's very humid outside, and a lot of times... The tables are not balanced very well, and the cloth is dirty, and they use a lot of powder. Oh, yeah, they just throw it on the table. This they is crazy. It, yeah, they just leave it on the rails. They leave stacks of powder on the rails, yeah. which is unheard of anywhere else. No, and it's getting like, messy everywhere. See if you can find uh, there's these uh, Efren Reyes matches where he still plays right now. He's playing all the time. He plays constantly, and they put them up online. If go to uh, Star Star Billiards, Efren Reyes, and so when he's playing, not only do they have powder all over the table, which gets on everything. It's all over the table, but every time someone's about to shoot, someone who's like either gambling or someone who's been assigned to it comes over and marks chalk. Yeah. where all the bar balls are in case someone moves the balls. So mm -hmm. that's a big distraction. And then there's 50 people around the table with flip-flops talking on their cell phones. Well, also the the action side of pool in Philippines is huge. Like huge. you have people betting every game like yelling game uh, yeah. yelling names before every game starts. And you have like uh chickens running around the table. That's, Literal chickens. Yeah. 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 I was watching Alex Pagulayan video, and you hear. <laughs> That's very common in the Philippines. Yeah. yeah. It's. See, do you have any videos from Star Billiards? I don't know exactly what I'm looking at. Nothing's coming up from like a Star Billiards account. Yeah, I'll find something for you. It's it's pretty specific, but the scene there is so fascinating, because it's contrary to everything that you would ever expect in a in a pool tournament, in a tournament other than the Moscone Cup where people are cheering in between shots, in these turn in these matches that they're playing, there's so much distraction. Oh, distractions every shot. I mean they're trying to shark you too, because if you're a foreign player coming to Philippines, they most likely will be betting against you. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, definitely. Um see I'll find something for you here. Hold on a second, Jamie. This is this guy, Jeff Gai Ling, G-A-L-I-N-G. Um, yeah, go to, uh, here, I'll send this to you. Here we go. Hold on a second. Share, Jamie. Uh -huh. Here, I sent you something. 
Um, so this place, the way they do it, is the best uh, preparation against someone distracting you because they're constantly distracted. So they learn how to like relax and focus. So here, look at this game. So look. <laughs> yeah, that's a typical game in the Philippines. Everyone's smoking cigarettes. People are taking selfies. They're all surrounding. I mean, they are feet from the table. Like moving around, walking while the match is going on with oh, flip flops yeah. on, and you have to move them to shoot every yeah. ball. Like imagine if you're that frozen on that back short rail. Yeah, you have to get in the corner and say, "Excuse me," and these guys are on their phone, and <laughs> it's so normal. Now look, look at the this. powder. <laughs> so there's a stack of powder on each side rail, and the stack of powder is so that they can use it and keep the the cue ball moving slick through their hand. But no one anywhere else does this. No. Well, uh, you can also imagine how humid it is. Over yeah, there. he's just practicing right now. He's he's getting ready and warming up. So scoot ahead a little bit so you can actually see the match. This is not the match for sure. Here we go. Now now he's actually playing. So that fucking powder, that shit gets on the table itself and it slows everything down, and it also makes the balls cling. They stick to each other. Oh yeah, he's grabbing the cue ball before every game starts too, and yeah. it, it gets on the cue ball, and then. But the because they play in these imperfect conditions, because they're accustomed to it, they develop these amazing strokes. Oh, I mean, yeah. Efren's stroke is just a thing of beauty, and also he. I think that's probably one of the reasons why they chose heavier cues. Because they were dealing with this very slow cloth, because it was always dirty, humid conditions. So in humidity, the balls don't move as well because there's dampness on the table. Oh, he is getting a spot from that guy. It looks like he's getting a spot. Well, you know, Efren's very old now. Yeah, he can't see very well, but the guy's still in action constantly. Yeah. Every 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 week. I'm but sure. look at this fucking crowd. Look at all these people. So this guy, uh, Jeff Guiling. He has uh, this YouTube channel where he's constantly showing these matches Look from the, the Philippines. On the street, they're just yeah. that's, that's the street there. Yeah, the doors open. Yeah, There's people on the street outside that can't get in that are watching this match because that's what kind of a legend Efren is. Yeah, there's a guy sitting in the closet over there. Yeah, he's in a fucking <laughs> closet watching from the closet. And he, I mean, in any other pool room, like if you were in Texas and this was going on and you're gambling. <laughs> Be like, get the fuck out of here! <laughs> like, why is everybody near the table? They're they're right there. They're like, where I am, like right here. Yeah, they're that close to the table while some of the best players in the world are playing. But it's really good practice, like you said. After after playing in such a different experience. Yeah. Well, know. the Filipinos are what what you call shark proof. Yeah. And what what sharking is, people think of pool shark as being someone who's like really good at pool. That's not what we call sharking. Sharking for the people that don't know is like if you were about to shoot and I moved and distracted you on purpose Like I'll wait until you're right about to, sh to move and I'll drop my cue. Yeah, or I'll spill a drink I'll make some noise like people do things on purpose to try to distract people. Yep. That happens a lot That's especially gambling. That's some bitch shit. Yep, isn't it? Oh, yeah, they try it all the time, too But it's some bitch shit when someone does that that's bitch-ass shit like, what are you doing? Just play. Oh, there's a lot of moves, even when it comes to pro players, too. Is there, like, what? Uh, I don't I don't really want to mention names. But no, you don't have to mention names. So I was playing the guy uh, a long race last year, and uh, if 
for example, everybody knows like uh, if you f if you win, uh, so we're playing a race to a hundred, and every every day we're playing a race to thirty three. So I I ended up winning day one, and I should be the one breaking the balls next day. So uh, I come in and we're about to begin, and he's like, "Are we lagging again?" So I'm like, uh, "No, bro, it's my break." So uh, there was a lot of a lot of different moves. Like uh, we, we used to we agreed to play with one magic rack, and he ended up uh, stealing the magic rack, and then, <laughs> and then we were on a break, and I broke the balls, made four balls on a break, and I had that I was dead out, and he's like, "Are you practicing or what are you doing?" I'm like, no, we're playing. I just asked you a minute ago, are you ready to start? And he's like, I didn't say anything. Oh, I was thinking you're, boy. You're, you're, you're practicing. I'm like, no. This bro. is a professional who did this? Yeah. I think you should say his name. Oh, no. no, no. Everybody <laughs> what does it will... rhyme with? Huh? What does his name rhyme with? Rhyme with? What does it rhyme with? Like, uh, Bogan rhymes with Rogan. Uh, Filler everybody rhymes will, with Diller. Everybody will understand. Yeah. He, he was he was a Filipino. So. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so he was well. You know, they're probably gambling a lot of money, right? Uh, we played for twenty grand. Yeah. 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 Uh, a big chunk of money. Yeah. Especially yeah. For big Philippines. chunk of money, and people get they get a little feisty. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, in gambling, do you think that people take drugs when they gamble? Uh yeah, absolutely. Look at you, like yeah. Yeah. What do you think they play? What do they think they take? Adderall. Mm. Uh, amphetamines. Yeah. Because yeah. you can see if you go to Derby City Classic, you will see people play for two, three days straight without <laughs> any, without any breaks. That's and, a heart attack special right there. Oh yeah, <laughs> it is. It is, and they play some crazy games like these. Aren't the healthiest people in the world either that are taking this Adderall and staying up for days? Like they're fucking, they're burning it. Oh yeah, it's unbelievable. They play some crazy ass games like fifteen ball bang game where you just it's an old it's an old man game where you just kind of clip the balls and you're just banging balls around for like fifty minutes. So and, it's a bank game. Yeah. 15 balls? Yeah, but there is a lot of moving part. Like, mm. you just play safety, safety, safety. as right. lower until you have a good bank shot. Yeah, and then after 50 minutes of playing safety, if you have a bank shot, most likely you're going to miss it. And then it goes over and over and over, and they do it for, like, days and days. So Adderall's the big one. It is a big one. Uh, I'm sure people play on cocaine. Uh, I would think cocaine would be a problem. I've never done cocaine, but from what I understand, it doesn't last that long. No, but they they're taking breaks. <laughs> and I've seen one time I've seen the guy was using cocaine instead of uh the powder for his cue. What? That's an expensive powder right there, yeah. He was putting cocaine on his fingers? Yeah. And then doing like Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cocaine for baby powder? Oh my god, that's insane! But he was—he was fucked up, like completely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was he playing well? He was playing decent. I mean, he's a de decent player. I don't know his name, but uh, he was uh, just an action junkie. Well, like I said about that book, uh, Buddy Hall. I think it's uh, from Rags to Riflemen is the name of the book. I have a copy of it, and it's uh, a very old book. And the way it was made. It looks like it was self-published. Like the font would be different sizes on different pages. It's a rare book. You can still find it. Like sometimes on AZ Billiards, someone has a copy of it for sale. But it's pretty valuable now. Mm -hmm. But 
they all played on amphetamines and they would all play for days and days and days but it fucked a lot of people's lives up oh, of course because they all got addicted to that stuff of course yeah i mean i've played a lot of matches that lasted more than 10 hours and for me it's it's really really tough because i never do anything like that and i drink water and maybe i'll drink pepsi if i feel that yeah. i need some energy some sugar so uh yeah of course it gives them big advantage in matches like that there was a top player in new york in the 1990s uh they'd call he had a bunch of different names uh one of them was water dog other other times they called him buffalo bill because he had this kind of crazy mustache I think I've heard about him. Yeah. He was an elite player, but he was a heroin addict. So he would go to the bathroom, and everybody knew what was going on. He would go to the bathroom and lock the door, and he would be in there for like 10, 15 minutes, and then he would come out, and he would sit on the stool. He'd sit on a billiard stool like this. <laughs> I mean, sit there for like 20 minutes, just like this, like... Just gone, just gone <laughs> in the world of heroin. Just, oh. And then he would get up from that, and he had shark eyes. They were like, the pupils were like fully dilated like a gerbil. Like you weren't even talking to a human. He didn't even see you. And he would get on the table, and he couldn't fucking miss. And there was a table at Executive Billiards. It was a tight, tight tables, table one. And that's the table where everybody gambled if they played one pocket or straight pool. They were ridiculous pockets. They were like four inch, but it was a gaff pocket where whoever made the shims, they were all fucked up. They didn't <laughs> line up that good. So there was like, they were rough on the corner. So if you could like clip the edge a little, you're fucked. You're not making the ball. Yeah. And this guy couldn't miss. I believe that. It was wild because he was just like in this heroin fog with <laughs> no nerves at all. And he was just firing balls in. And he was playing this guy named George the Greek. And George the Greek was this character that um, was an old school hustler, grifter, gambler who he used to he used to race horses. He would do those carriage races and they banned him from carriage racing because while his horse was winning, he stood up in the carriage is trying to slow the <laughs> horse down. <laughs> <laughs> because people had gambled against him, but he had a really oh good horse because he was he was the favorite to win <laughs> because of this horse. So he gets on, t he's standing up, pulling back on the horse, trying to slow him down. Wow. And they, he always, his story was always that he hired William Kunstler. And William Kunstler is a famous attorney. Kunstler. Kunstler's going to get me out of this case. These cocksuckers, they don't know what the fuck they're dealing with. William Kunstler's going to get me back on that track. And so George wind up actually opening up his own pool hall in uh, White Plains. But for a while, he was like hanging around executive billiards, and then he was a houseman for a while too. But he was playing this guy, Water Dog, and he was playing him for... They were playing for a lot of money. It was like I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of five to ten thousand dollars for uh, like games of straight pool. So they play like one hundred and fifty points for like ten thousand mm -hmm. dollars. And he was so angry because Water Dog would come out of the bathroom <laughs> like this and then just couldn't miss. And he's like, this cocksucker, he goes with that fucking John and he's shooting up that shit and he comes out here and he can't fucking miss. And so he was doing this to try to get water dog agitated but he was just like this 
Like he didn't give a fuck. <laughs> George, could, George could be screaming in his face. He's just like, and he just couldn't wait to get back to the table and just fire in balls. He was hitting. It was beautiful to watch. He had this just like. I've never done heroin, but I would imagine it must be wonderful because the, 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 the flow that he had around the table, it was something to watch. It almost made you want to try heroin, <laughs> but yeah. he couldn't play without heroin. And I didn't see him for years later. And then it was 1994 um, and I had moved to Los Angeles and I was playing in the Hard Times tournament. Hard Times was the big pool hall in Bellflower, California, where all the pros would go. You would go there on a Sunday night uh, or Sunday day to play, and you could play Francisco Bustamante. You could play Efren Reyes, Oscar Dominguez. You could play all the Max Eberly. All these top, top pros were there. And Water Dog was there. And uh, I saw him and I said, Hey, man, what are you doing? And he goes, yeah, I came here to play pool, but uh, I need someone to get me in the tournament. I'll go, I'll put you in the tournament. You know, because it was like, I don't remember what the entry fee was, 25 bucks or something like that. You didn't have any money. I was like, I'll put you in. He goes, yeah, but we got to go get some shit. <laughs> I go, what do you mean? And he goes, he goes, I got to get my shit. I go, well, where do you have to go get it? He's like, South Central. I'm like, okay, we'll go get it. He goes, I need someone to drive me. I, I go, I'm not driving you there. Because <laughs> like back then, if you got arrested for uh, buying drugs, they would take your car. Oh. So I had a 1995 Toyota Supra. It was the shit. Yeah. It was a Supra Turbo. Did you ever see one of those? Uh, I can imagine. Oh, they were beautiful. It had a wing on the back of it. It was my pride and joy. It's like I'd never had a nice car <laughs> in my whole life. And then all of a sudden I had this, like, I was on television. Mm -hmm. Like, and I had this new car. And the, and he was like, we got to go get some shit. I'm like, I am not. That's the car. That's what it looked like. Mine was silver. It was beautiful. That's what it, exactly what my car looked like. Oh, I love that car. I still love that car to this day. I might go buy one. <laughs> but um, uh, he, he was so angry at me that I wouldn't take him to go, to go buy heroin. I'm oh, like, yeah. dude, I can't. They'll take my car. Now, they're not going to take it. I go, how do you know? You don't even have a fucking place to sleep. Like, yeah. they'll take my fucking car. I'm not, I'm not taking you to buy heroin. So I put him in the tournament with no heroin, and he couldn't make a ball. Well, of course. <laughs> it was so sad. He was, just, he was angry. Like, he was just missing and just fucking, bah. Yeah, I mean, but, the, like, like you said, there's a lot of players like this, especially uh, playing all these action matches. Yeah. There's no rules. So. Do you ever notice, like, those, play, those players who are top players who play really well on drugs, then they try to enter into a tournament with no drugs. Yeah. And you see the difference. Of course. Yeah. yeah. You can see uh, they, they just play completely different. But it makes you want to try drugs, doesn't it? Not really. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, you shouldn't. Well, you play so good without it. Why would you? Yeah, I mean, I kind of find, found a way how to get better without them. So. Well, just constant practice and technique. And Do you meditate at all? Uh, sometimes I do, and I, I think it's helpful, but I, I need to do it more. Mm. So especially, just... especially when I lose, you know, pool players, pool, pool, pool is a mental game. It really you, is. You can, you can lose a tournament without making any mistakes. And, uh, especially with, uh, pool players not making a good living, mm -hmm. it can be super mental. And I think meditating is really helpful to all the players. Yeah, that's what people don't understand. You could play really good and get bad rolls. Like you could miss, and every time you miss, you get lucky. Yeah, and or you leave for me example, no shot. 
you can you can get easier layouts after mm-hmm. the break you can get tough tough layouts you can knock a nine in on the break yeah especially playing nine ball there's a lot mm-hmm. of luck involved yeah yeah and when guys start losing like that and they're down like seven eight games in a row you could see they tighten up they tighten up like a real world-class player and they might miss a, a straight-in shot yeah because they just they just it's so much pressure and especially these guys that are living hand to mouth you know like whatever they make that day is what they have for food and there's a lot of pool players like that a lot of pool players like that yeah which in one on one hand it's there's a beauty to that and this is the beauty is that they really just love the game they could just sell cars or they could go and a lot of guys have right a yeah. lot of guys have gone on and just quit and 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 Dennis Hatch he wound up becoming a car salesman you know, Dennis Hatch was a fucking killer. Mm-hmm. Dennis Hatch was around back when I was playing. And there was a game, there was a, a place called West End Billiards. I think it was in Elizabeth, New Jersey. See if that's true. But it was a sketchy neighborhood. <laughs> fucking sketchy. Every time you go there, you would like go outside every like hour or so to check on your car just to get a look at it and look around. Like it was super sketchy. Uh-huh. But. I went there and I'm playing and Steve Miserak is there and Rodney Morris is there and Johnny Archer is there. It was crazy. It was that was my first experience as a young man with being able to enter a tournament. Like if you're a guy like me who sucks, you can enter a tournament and you might play the number one player in the world. Yeah, that's the beauty of the game. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And um I would go there to those tournaments and and watch those guys and just it, there's no other sport like that where you could you you know the game like that where you could be a low rank player and you would at least be in the presence on the table with one of the greatest players that's ever lived yeah you know like I was playing right next to Steve Miserac and this was when you know Steve Miserac was older, but it's still, my God, that stroke that he had, it was beautiful. He just, he had this effortless stroke. I mean, it was just this perfect, classic stroke. He was a left-handed guy, and he would get down on that ball, and, you know, he was a big, fat guy. So, like, he wasn't moving anywhere. He didn't need any weights. And he would settle down on that ball, and people would just watch him. And you would see these guys just go, God. It's just be, it's. I always say that pool is an art form that only the people who practice can appreciate. Maybe, yeah. I mean, most people don't understand how hard it is, how tough it is, and uh, they don't care. Like, yeah, if if I'm watching pool and my wife comes in the room and I'm watching pool, she's like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, I'm like, "Look at wa- watch this. Just watch this. Just watch this. Watch this guy. Watch this guy stroke." She's like, "Well, well you have to try. You have to try to understand how tough it is." Right. You also have to have experienced like the feeling of making a really good shot to know how beautiful it is to watch someone just do that over and over and over and over again. So it's not good that these guys are living hand to mouth, but the beautiful thing is that they're doing it just because they love the game. Yeah, absolutely. They love that game. Otherwise, I don't see any other reason why they do it. There's a few disciplines that I really appreciate because the people that are doing it are only doing it for the glory of the pursuit of excellence. Wrestling is another one. Like amateur wrestling, there's no money in amateur wrestling. There's no money in it. There's no professional venue. Other than mixed martial arts, when guys leave wrestling, 
they generally, if they're the elite of the elite, they might go on to coach. You know, guys you know, like Mark Schultz or Daniel Cormier, they go on and coach kids or coach colleges. But for the most part, it's they're doing it just for the glory and the love of the sport. And it's it's great. It is great, man. It's uh, that's one of the things that I want to try to do when I want to try to host these matches is try to just try to get people to appreciate what I'm appreciating. And it's very hard to do. Like it's very not just to do the but to, to get people to appreciate it. Well, it's tough to explain what they have to understand because mm -hmm. it's it's like you said that you you will have to be doing the job. You will have to be doing the right commentary for that. Yeah, uh, but it's possible. I think. I think it's possible. I think I think I can get people to pay attention if I can do commentary and talk a little shit and have fun and yeah. make it fun, make it funny. And my friend Tommy that I'm going to do with, he's a very good player too. Who was like a, he was a top player when he was younger, but then realized, hey, there's no fucking future in this. He was playing this guy. He'll, he'll never. He, he told me the story. He'll, he said he never forgot it. He was like uh, 21, 22 years old, and he's. He's a fucking stone cold killer. I mean, he's playing big money gambling matches. Like Tommy easily could have gone on to be a really good pro. Easily. Like he was really he could break a run five, six racks in a row. Excellent cue ball control. Great shot maker. But he was playing this guy, Neptune Joe Frady. And Joe Frady was another guy who played at West End Billiards back in the day in those pro tournaments. And uh he was one of those guys who always had a cigarette. The cigarette was in between his fingers of while he's holding the oh kid. My God. Yeah. And uh, he played with his mouth open. So he was like this older guy. He was bald, had his pot belly, and he would get down on the ball, droned out with a cigarette in his hands with his mouth wide open like this, <laughs> and just a straight murderer, just a killer on the table. And Tommy was playing this guy. And he was like, look how good this guy is, and he doesn't have a fucking pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. And that's what he said. He said, I realize like, I can't do this. I don't want to be that guy when I'm his yeah. age. I don't want to be this guy who's amazing at pool, but he's fucking just perpetually broke with no options and no future. I mean, yeah, that's what most pool players, I'm pretty sure that they think nowadays still, like, do I really have to do this? Do I have to really go through this? Or maybe I should change my lifestyle and do something else. Yeah. I, I, I went through it and I'm 22. I imagine all this 35, 40 year old players. I mean, I thought that very much so when I was a young man, when I was doing martial arts, because I was competing for free. I was doing amateur taekwondo tournaments. They were very dangerous and it was free. I was, wasn't getting any money. I wasn't, I was traveling, so it cost me money to travel these tournaments. And you're watching people get knocked out and watching people get concussions and head kicked and shit. And then I got an offer for a kickboxing fight. It was like a professional fight. And it was $500. And I remember thinking, $500? I have to train for like six weeks. I have to run. I have to hit the bag and spar and do rounds. And if I win, I get $500. And there was no UFC back then, mm. and professional kickboxing was very small. It really wasn't successful in America. Never took off. And I realized, like, I gotta find something else to do. I can't do this. It was also I was worried about brain damage too. But 
It yeah. was, see, that's a little different than pool. Like, it is, it is. like, if you lose, you get kicked in the face. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't. That's not for me. <laughs> but it's that thing where I felt like I was really good at something that wasn't even profitable. I think where you're at right now with pool is different because I, my personal belief is that like the stuff that's going on right now with Matchroom Pool and with a couple of these other companies that are putting on these streaming shows and I think you're at the right time yeah. where you're a young guy where pool is because of the internet there's enough people following it where it's starting to emerge where and then things like the Moscone Cup where people see it's so exciting that I think there's some momentum now I think you're catching the wave at the exact right time yeah I think so too that's why I keep playing I think so too what are, what are your do you have goals do you have like aspirations like what is what is your goal with the game so uh, i mean it used to be i used to have goals every year based on my schedule it used to be like to win the world championships and i used to always have goals for every tournament i went to of course but uh this year it's been different i've been playing everything and everywhere i could have in the United States, I flew in the beginning of March, and I played literally nonstop pool for six months straight, just being on the road, constantly playing in the bars and playing all the smaller events. It was miserable, but uh, at least I was playing, and I think it was smart coming here because I was still playing pool, and that was that's what kept me in stroke. Uh, for next year, the goal would be uh, to showed my best game and on all of this official events because I'm finally back and uh, I'm currently I can't leave the country because I'm applying for a green card but uh, I believe I believe once everything gets approved hopefully uh, second half of the year I will be able to go and play all these bigger events outside of the United States and that's once you get a green card uh, yes so I need to I need to get the that's what's called travel authorization, and then uh, I'll be uh, able to leave the country. Are you going to apply for U.S. citizenship? Uh, once I get a green card, maybe I... Come on, bro. Become American. I didn't think that far, but uh, there, is, there is a chance. There <laughs> Don't is a chance. you want to be American? A lot of people, a lot of people <laughs> want me to play for American Moscone Cup. That team. would be crazy. I think it would be good for for the sport. I mean, it would be a huge thing. But uh, I think it would be great. I think it's people don't realize how tough it is. I mean, to get a citizenship, you need to spend at least five years, and then there's a thing called if you change your uh, if you change the country that you play for. Uh, internationally, I think there is a quarantine that you have to go through. I think you can't play two years in any big international events if you want to switch the country. Mm. And so it's seven years for me to become uh, a player representing the United States. So, But by then you'll be in your prime. Hopefully. 29 years old? Oh, my God. You'll be in your prime. Because, like, you think about the elite players – the the guys that are the best, it's like a lot of it. It's like between twenty six and like thirty three, thirty four, thirty five. Then when they get older, it's like starts to slide. It's very rare. Like Dennis Ocolo is still one of the very best players in the world, and he's in his forties, right? Oh yeah, Dennis. I mean, Dennis is uh, not a great example. It's he's sick. It's unbelievable what he does for uh, for his age. He's sick, like physically sick. No, no, oh, like sick, sick, like, like sick player. Yeah, yeah, player. yeah, yeah. No, no doubt. 
And then Bustamante, he's 50. He's still one of the he's best players 50. in the world. Yeah, I just yeah. watched his match on the stream the other day. He was playing uh, Darren Appleton, I believe, in Philippines, and it was uh, it was unbelievable to see. Yeah, he's still one of the very best players in the world. And I have a uh, a framed photo of him outside here from the Bicycle Club, which was a um, a casino in Los Angeles, and I think the tournament, I went to see the tournament, it was like 1995, back when he had a mullet, he had like kind of like spiky hair and a mullet, and he had this break that was like one of the craziest breaks that anybody had ever seen. Like he had the best break in the world at one point in time, where he would he would have his finger on the rail, he'd break off the rail on the side rail, and the cue would slide out of his hand, and then back through. Oh yeah, there is a, Two Russian players that do the same thing. Have you ever heard of Evgeny Stalif? No. He used to be around that IPT time, so I'm pretty sure you you saw him play. He does the same thing. He's a very unique player. He he is like the Russian pyramid star. Everybody who's involved in pyramid world in uh, Russia, they know who he is. Mm. He's, uh, he won everything in his time. And he was playing pool and went to IPT and finished fourth, I believe. So he, he was a good player himself as well. And he used to, when he was breaking, he used to lift his arm, kind of like Roberto Gomez, mm-hmm. and like whack him like crazy, crazy speed. And every time he was breaking from the rail, he was doing the same thing. The cue would always come out of the bridge, and somehow he would hit a certain spot on the cue ball. Yeah, I don't know how Bustamante did it. I would watch, like, people, they would play it, they would focus on it in the replays. They would give you, like, a close-up of his, of his fingers. To show you, like, look how crazy this is. Have you ever noticed that Bustamante aims? Yeah, to the left. To the left and then hits. Wherever he wants to hit. So his practice strokes, he's shooting left, like to the left side of the ball, and and always low. But then he might follow the ball. He might hit it with right English. So what they say uh, back when he was, uh, back when nobody knew the game that well, they're saying that he was hiding the way he was playing, and that's how that was, that's how he was hiding the the tip position he was putting on the. Oh, I wonder if those guys got upset when people started using the measles ball. <laughs> Probably, I don't know. So, for people don't know they don't use that anymore in most tournaments, right? Yeah. But the measles ball was a ball that they developed for television play, where it had little red dots all over the ball. So, if you hit the ball with left hand English or right-hand English, it was very obvious to anyone anywhere near because you could see the the dots spinning to the left, mm-hmm. whereas sometimes guys would make a shot. It was an incredible shot. You're like, what fucking English did he use? How did he do that? Like, what how, what kind of spin did he put on that ball? Because you really couldn't tell because no. it was just a white ball. And unless you were, like, right on top where you could see the tip positioning when he struck the ball, you really didn't know. Yeah, it's insane the way he plays, and it's 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 unique. Well, there's so many F- Filipinos came over here and robbed everybody. <laughs> yeah. It was uh, amazing. And the best version of that is Efren. When uh, Efren first came over here, he had a fake name. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Efren, when he first came over here, God damn it, what was his name? It was like a Spanish name. Oh, see if you can find it. So he played his very first tournament under a fake name because he is god i can't believe i can't remember it generally i can remember it but he played under a fake name because even though it was like the 1980s 
he assumed that someone had been to the Philippines and knew that this guy was the king over yeah. there. And then, can you find it? I'm looking on. The Efren's, just Google, Google Efren played under a fake yeah, name. Yeah, Cesar Morales. Cesar Morales. That's it. So that was his name. So he came over here under Cesar Morales and robbed everybody. And then uh, when he came back, he was Efren Reyes. And everybody's like, oh, <laughs> we got fucked. There it is. Cesar Morales stuns the field at Reds. <laughs> wow. And this was back when he was playing with a $5 pool cue. <laughs> he oh, he had a pool like cue. Dennis Hercola on the left. It does look like him, but I don't think it is. Because Dennis is uh, quite a bit older. Yeah, younger. Younger rather than that guy. But that was in Houston. And what year is that? 85. 1985. Yeah, so he came out, stuns the field. <laughs> he fuck came over here and fucked everybody up. <laughs> they had no idea that he would go on to be the greatest of all time. Wade Crane. Wade Crane was a bad motherfucker. AKA Dave Matlock. Look at all these guys. Yeah. Mike Gugliassi. Wow. Interesting. Bobby Hunter. Danny DiLiberto. All those names. Yeah. Wade Crane also had a, a, a fake name. He called himself Billy Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Billy Johnson was Wade Crane's road name. Well, when the internet wasn't around, there was a big thing, I think. Yeah. Well, that was his... He would go around playing as Billy Johnson because everybody had heard of Wade Crane. And yeah. so he would just show up places and, you know, and people had no idea. And then he would rob them. It's perfect, yeah. Well, there was a, a great book uh, called Playing Off the Rail. Have you ever heard of that book? Uh-uh. Playing Off the Rail was a book by uh, this guy David McCumber, who at one point in time was Hunter S. Thompson's editor. Uh, when he was writing for a newspaper, um, and we, and uh, they took this guy Tony Anagoni, who was a, a really good pro, and they went on the road with like thirty five thousand dollars. So like 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 taped the money to his body and shit in some places, and they they did it for a book. And the book is still available. You can still find the book somewhere. It's it's well worth it if you're a pool player, if you're into pool, to get this book. Because it's really, David McCumber is a really good writer and it's really well written. And Tony Anagoni uh, became a friend of mine. And I actually did commentary with him once on a match back in LA back in the day. And uh, I became friends with him and played with him a bunch of times. And uh, tragically, I think about a year and a half or so ago, he took his own life. He jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. Wow. Yeah, very sad. But in that book, they went to Chelsea Billiards. They went to all these different places where they, they hustled, mm -hmm. and they just set up matches and set up games and played people. But it just gives you this kind of taste, for, especially because McCumber's such a good writer. It gives you this feeling, this really interested, interesting like uh, depiction of what that life is like. These guys that do things like that, like you know Wade Crane did when he called himself Billy Johnson. Like That is a whole subset of Americana where these guys would travel around, stay in shitty hotels and gamble. Yeah. I mean it's it's kind of the same picture nowadays too. Yeah. There's still a lot of that. Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot. It's it's fucking cool. You know, it's a it's a really cool part of like this subculture that people don't know about. And I've always admired people who did it. I always I always thought that was a cool way to live your life. It's a crazy, reckless, but 
the people that did it, they were such fucking characters. They were yeah. such interesting people. Yeah, I mean, all of them. It's it's a crazy lifestyle. I don't know if I would recommend it to my kids, but... Uh, no. But it's... Uh, I mean, yeah. It's Maybe just, you would... No. If if pool becomes something really big, you know, if pool does grow to the point where there's million dollar purses, absolutely, and... but not the gambling side. You know, no. I went, I went no, through, no, I went no, through no. a lot of a lot of that, and uh, it's shady. Did you ever get in a situation where people pulled out guns or people were robbing people? No, but my friend did in Philippines. What happened? Once, well, the, he beat the guy out of a small amount of money, and uh, the guy didn't want to pay him. And he was—he wasn't even like pushing him to pay. He was like hundred bucks, uh, but uh, he was the only foreign in the in the building. And he had a guy with him that took care of him and kind of made games for him. And that guy started saying something in uh, Tagalog and Philippine in uh, their own language. And the guy pulled his gun and like started shooting in the in the air, like trying to say that I'm not playing here. He was like an authority. Uh, or something for a hundred bucks i mean imagine what it do for fifty one thousand gambling junkies yeah that's you. the thing gambling junkies it's not about the money for him right it, and there's so many of those guys that are connected to underworld characters there's all these you know wild gamblers that are they're almost all at least one step removed from criminals yeah yeah. If they're not criminals themselves, they might have a criminal who's a backer. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of drug money involved, I think, in uh, in gambling. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There was always guys that were backing people back in my day when I was hanging around New York where there were, there were just these guys that were drug addicts or drug dealers. They were selling coke, yeah, and they had that money, and that was how they burned the money. They would come in and and gamble it. Yeah, do the same thing tomorrow. Yeah, I remember one time we went to Harlem to play this guy um, because these pimps they would have a ton of money and they would play big money one pocket, and so we went down to Harlem, and here I am, this dorky, fresh face. I was your age. I was like, dude, <laughs> hanging, hanging around in Harlem in this like fucking heavy duty, like, like hardcore pool room where these pimps would go and gamble big money and they'd come in with flashy clothes on and it was just such a scene, man. <laughs> it was such a scene. It was so cool. It was just so, well, just to sit there. I mean, I wasn't playing those guys. I sucked. I, but I was with my friend Johnny and this guy Mount Vernon Tommy, who was like a real top player from the area, and they were all and this guy Juan, who was also a, uh, this killer, and they would we would all go down together. We'd take this drive down together to Harlem, and at the time, the uh, garbage workers were on strike, so all the garbage was stacked outside. So when they would take garbage out to the curb, nobody would throw the garbage out. So there was six foot high piles of garbage that lined the whole street I'm not bullshitting so you'd walk down the sidewalk and rats would be everywhere i mean everywhere you'd see the garbage bags moving they would scramble in front of your feet i'm like oh my god like i grew up in the suburbs of newton massachusetts right that's where i went to high school <laughs> <laughs> in this like very nice, you know, upper middle class neighborhood, yeah. I was fresh faced little cute kid, and I'm wandering around with these degenerate gamblers 
in a, a, a pool hall in Harlem filled with pimps. Wow. But I got out of there. I, I wouldn't trade those experiences for the world because they were so. It was so interesting to see that the subculture of these gamblers and pool players and all they cared about was like who's the killer, like who's the guy, you yeah. know. And they all had these crazy names, and everybody had these cool nicknames. Nicknames, yeah. Oh my God, it was it was such an amazing time. But it's such. That's what scares me about it is that, like I think it's like it has it's. Right now, it's got like we said, this resurgence. But there was a time where I thought this could go away. Like this, pool halls were closing. They, people weren't going to them anymore. It was just like it was in L.A. They all went away, and this is one of the reasons why it was really sad to me, because in L.A., the big pool hall in town was uh, Hollywood Billiards, and uh, when I first moved to L.A., I played at the original Hollywood Billiards, but then there was an earthquake. And Hollywood Billiards, the building got fucked up, so then they had to move it. And then they moved it to this place that was, like, much nicer. And then it became, instead of, like, this place where, like, it was a lot of players, then it became a place where people would take their dates, and they served good food, and they played nice music, and it kind of changed. Mm -hmm. And then it went under. And then there was no pool halls in L.A. None. L.A., as big as L.A. is, no pool halls. You had the House of Billiards in Sherman Oaks, the House of Billiards in Santa Monica, which I don't even know if it's still there anymore. And then you had Hard Times, which is quite a bit away. That was like Bellflower, which is like 50 minutes drive. Why do you think that happened? When was it, like 2010? Yeah, it was just, yeah. It was uh, somewhere around then that Hollywood Billiards went under. Because that video of me doing Earl Strickland, that was at Hollywood Billiards. Mm. That was at Hollywood Billiards, the new, nicer place, before it went under. So you'd have, like, a few players that would go there, but the vast majority of the room was filled with lemons. They were all just, bail, you know, ball bangers and people <laughs> on dates and, you know. Yeah. Girls with you know hot asses bending over pool tables trying to impress their dates, which is fine. Yeah. But I mean that's you need that to keep a pool room open. But watching that place go under, I was like, God damn it, pool's dying. Like this is what it felt to me. It was dying at some point, hundred percent. Yeah. But, I mean, I got lucky. I when I was starting to play pool, pool started to kind of making a comeback. And in in Europe, I mean, I never knew how it is in the U.S. until like. I came here probably two, two, three years ago because I was all, all I knew is Derby City Classic. That's the only tournament I went to, and it's it's completely opposite to what the American pool scene is. Right, Derby's wild. Oh, it's it's crazy. If if you never experienced it, it's it's even tough to describe it. It's it's crazy. It's first floor is the tournament, and then you go upstairs. It's completely different life. I mean, you have people just live there in that action room for eight days just playing nonstop 24 hours you can you have the players that come in at like three or four o'clock because they were sleeping before just to come and play at three or four o'clock with people that been playing for days and just trying to take advantage of them not sleeping it's it's <laughs> it's unbelievable but yeah i mean it's it's definitely different did you grow up in like what kind of a neighborhood did you grow up in I grew up in Moscow, Russia. So it's like a megapolis, big city, kind of like New York style. And so you were probably never around those kind of people. I was never around any gambling until I came 
on the road with uh, Alan and Jason that broke. Really? Me. So yeah. in Europe, you never saw gambling? They they don't gamble in Europe. All they really? do, they can bet a little wager on like a sp sparring set. They can play for like fifty euros just to make it more interesting and put mm -hmm. a little pressure and. So small wagers. Yeah, just to yeah. play to play and make it more interesting. Mm -hmm. But gambling is really small. It's getting a little bit bigger. I saw guys play for like 20 grand last week in Romania on the stream. And then uh, Switzerland, they gamble there. But it's, it's nothing compared to U.S. Why do you think that is? Because they treat the game completely different. Here, people in general, even the professional players, they would rather play than practice. In Europe, I feel it's different. People mm. would rather practice and get better and treat it more professionally, I would say, than here. There's some really good players from Europe that do a lot of instructionals, and they, uh, like Niels Fine. Niels was actually my favorite player. He's a great player. Growing up, yeah. Yeah, I sent his one of his videos to my friend Sean. We're talking about the pause, where he's uh, practicing strokes, and he's just got these rock-solid fundamentals. But he was also a guy that didn't gamble either, right? I believe he gambled. I mean, I've heard the stories. I'm, I don't know for sure, but he when he, he gambled. He came to the U.S., I, I believe he gambled. One of the big ones was Ralph Suquet. He would never gamble. Ralph, uh, I believe that. Ralph would never gamble. Yeah, Same but, as Thorsten. I, I don't think they would But gamble. everybody was like, you know, they were upset because here is this guy who's a world beater, one of the yeah. best players in the world, and all he would do is play tournaments. So there was a thing, there was like a label on those guys, like, ah, he's a tournament player. Well, it's it's the same thing today. It's the same thing today. I mean, I'm joking myself, like, uh, I'm, I'm an action player. I'm not a tournament player. And, you know, they released the band, and I'm a tournament player again. I'm not an action player. So, uh, yeah. What do you prefer? I prefer tournament because uh that's uh that's the lifestyle that i uh that I grew up and I like it you know I know what I have to work for i have I can schedule my practice sessions also it's not dangerous it's not dangerous and I mean nowadays you can make less money playing tournaments but uh that will change I believe but the thing is like some of these top players they gamble but the way they do it. They do it in a live stream, and they make it like a one-on-one -on -one tournament. Yeah, so a it's lot like, of a lot of matches I play, it's pay-per-view. Uh, so I'm getting an appearance fee as well. But uh, still, it's completely different to tournaments. I mean, I'd much rather play tournaments than gambling matches. Would you rather play a tournament that's a a short match though, like a race to seven? versus a g game like you were playing with that Filipino gentleman where you could play a, like a race to 100 for no, three days. of course, the longer race would be better for me. Yeah. Then the the better player will win in the end. You yeah, know, shorter yeah, races, on. Shorter races is okay because you can understand. It's for uh, to speed things up and for the viewer, it's boring to watch a longer race. I get it. Uh, but of course, I would prefer the longer race. The, in the Moscone Cup, when they do one-on-ones, isn't it like a race to five? A race to five alternate break. Yeah, that's crazy. But they have eleven of them at least. So yeah, it's a that, lot of races. The thing is, like, race to five is so quick. It is, but when you have a lot of them, it will even things up. You know, in the end, the better player will still win. And 
is it the Predator Tour that does the shootouts? Yes, they have uh, that strange format that they uh, started with two years ago. It's two races to four, and if you tie one-to-one -one after two sets, you do the shootouts. So for people that don't understand what that is, they put the 10 ball on the spot, and you're behind the head string, and you you just see who who makes the most amount of 10 balls in the row. Yeah, I mean, it's exciting for a viewer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure there. It's a lot of pressure. Do you like that, though? I like the pressure, but I I hate losing it because I, every time I lose, I want to understand why I, I lost. And, you know, it, uh, there's a good example. So I played Ralph Suquet in uh, Puerto Rico last month in that Predator tournament. The first set, I won 4 nothing, played perfect, and then I uh, started off the uh, second set. I went up 3 nothing, playing good, you know, broke dry. And then uh, maybe kicked one time, and it's I lost the set. I lost four to three, and it's 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 such a mental format that I was I was one wreck away from the win. Mm -hmm. The match is never over with that format. You know, you it's 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 tough to describe. And I ended up losing in the shootout. And uh, you know, you go to I, I missed one ball in the whole match. And how many when you did the shootout? How many ten balls did you guys make? Uh, I made three and he made four, so it's best of four shots, and right. he made four of them. What happens if you both make four? Then you move the cue ball back one diamond, and, and it's a sudden death. Whoa! So whoever makes the mistake first loses. So it's one diamond behind the head string. Yeah, so you're playing from uh, the first diamond of the long rail. That's a lot of pressure for yeah. all your cheese. Yeah. I mean, win, win or lose, they do that in the finals as well. Yeah, I won. Uh, I won three tournaments already that Predator Series once, and one of them I played Carlo Biato in the finals, and uh, shootout was decider there. Wow. Yeah, I mean, for 25 grand, you have to shoot one single ball. It's uh, it's crazy. It's not a bad idea. No, it's not, but it's uh, absolutely brutal to lose that way. I could understand. I mean, I don't think it's the best expression of elite pool playing. I think no. the best expression of elite pool playing is like a race, a long race. But, but, I, but I believe that formats like this should should survive and they should be there for the viewing side of you. I think it's a good format as an alternative. Yeah. Just like I think the Moscone Cup is good as an alternative. It's an interesting way to express pool. But I think uh, as a person who just loves the game, I want to see like a race to 15, something like that, where it's like a real a real set. Yeah, the real battle. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Uh but in the end of the day, they're always trying to grow the game, and I think the the viewership will help, and tournaments like this will will expand. No, I think so too. I mean, it's look, it's good that someone's doing anything. It's good that Predator's doing that, Matchroom's doing that, and and all these uh, independent streaming companies are doing that, like Omega Billiards. Mm -hmm. They have streams. Um, what's next for you? Uh my tournament schedule is already packed for January, February. It starts with Turning Stone Classic in New Jersey. Then, uh, oh, that's a big tournament. Yeah, official one, a ranking event, and then uh, the tournament before Derby City Classic in Louisville, and then Derby City Classic, which is huge. Then uh, February, I have some smaller tournaments in uh, Louisiana, some bar table tournaments, and... Uh, do you like playing on bar table tournaments? No, I hate it. I saw you. You posted something on your Instagram about 
playing in little kids' tables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I hate it, but uh, there's a lot of money out there. Yeah? A lot of them. Uh, so, you know what Calcutta is? Mm hmm so Yeah. So, the Calcutta's on the bar table. Let's explain the Calcutta. The way the Calcutta works is, like, say if there's a bunch of people that are uh, entering into a tournament, like 32 players, you can gamble by buying a player in the Calcutta. Like, if you were in a tournament, and I could buy you. And a lot of times it's an auction. It's like someone says, uh, I have uh, $100 on Fedor. And I'm like, I got 150 and then you know someone will go, I'll give two hundred, and then you get all that money gets piled up. And if you own a player in the Calcutta, if you purchased a player in the Calcutta, when that person wins, you can get a pile of money. And a lot of times they cut it with the player, like they'll give the player a piece of the action so that they, they don't feel like you know, and they're they're getting fucked over because sometimes the Calcutta is bigger than the actual prize. Always is. Always is. Uh, I mean, yeah, always. Especially on a bar table. Bar table can be huge sometimes. Like sometimes it will go over 150, 200 grand. And what is the culture of the bar table tournaments and bar table pool rooms? How much does that differ from the big table rooms? Usually it's just the bars. They're in bars. Yeah. So it's like louder. Super loud. and Music, smoking. Yeah, all that, all that. and uh, Characters. I've had bad experience, yeah. Went to... East Moline, Illinois, this year. Uh, we were playing on Valley Bar Tables. That's like... Uh, Coin-operated. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Bar Tables with like five and a half inch pockets. Yeah. With dead rails and smaller balls. I mean, it was like absolutely crazy. And uh, yeah, that was one of the places where I uh, didn't really want to go out on the street. Just <laughs> wanted to be in the corner of the pool hall and just waiting for my match and... What was the bad experience about it? I was just feeling that something could happen to me. Mm. I don't know. It's tough tough to explain, but just the vibe of the pool room and the vibe of the city, I didn't, I didn't like it. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's in the middle of nowhere. It was tough to get there. I had to take a, take a taxi from St. Louis, four-hour drive, and it was... Uh, it isn't worth it. I, I, I won't ever go back there. <laughs> it's interesting that some guys become like known for being bar table killers. Like Dave Matlock was always known as being like a bar table killer. Yeah, I mean it's a different game. It's a different game. It's like a ten footer, seven footer, nine foot pool. It's different. Seven footers are a good equalizer because an amateur can play good on the bar table, and he will absolutely suck on the nine footer. Mm-hmm. And you know you will have more players signing up for bar table tournaments because they will have a chance to beat me on paper. So uh, I think that's why they're bigger in the U.S. And that's 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 a part of the problem why pool is not there comparing to Europe. We don't play on the seven footers at all. And also, it's treated with more respect. Yes, over there. Yes, that too. And both in preparation, in the way people train and practice. It seems like the European players, when you watch them, they have a much more uniform approach than American players. Like a lot of American players, their styles vary so differently. The way they stroke the ball, the way they move around. Yeah, but it's it's changing slightly, The especially after Johan Rising was a, was a 
captain for Team USA and worked with him for a couple of years. I think he kind of gave him an understanding how it could be done. And players like Tyler Steyer and Shane Wolford, you know, young guns. Tyler plays very much like a European player. He looks like he could be playing for. Yeah, he's a very methodical. He, he works hard. He practices. And I think he's a, he's a very good uh, ambassador for all the players that you can look up to. So your goal, you must want to be number one in the world, right? I want to be, but it's not my goal. What is your goal? My goal is just to be... To just get better. I don't have a certain goal that I want to reach, like being number one or win. I won a world championships already. I want to win it again, but is it my like primary goal? No. Especially not knowing my schedule right now, I I just I just want to play as good as I could and uh, practice and get better every day. Well, I think with that goal, that could lead you to be the best in the world. I mean, you're right there. Who knows? Maybe I am already. You might be. You never know. You're certainly in the conversation. I mean, yeah. And you're only 22, which is pretty wild. And you're the first pool player I've ever had on this podcast. So congratulations. Thank you. For that. Thanks. And uh, all right, man, let's wrap this up. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. It was great to meet you. It was really fun to play with you. Thank you so much. And uh, I wish you all the best of luck, and hopefully you'll you'll keep on trucking. Well, thank you, Joe. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.